Binge Mode Star Wars is presented by State Farm. You know those days when it feels like problems just pop up out of nowhere? The helpful folks at State Farm do. Like a fender bender when you're already late. Or a thief breaking into your home and making off with your new flat screen TV. Luckily, there are more than 19,000 agents who are there for you. Because when it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents are ready to help. Find an agent today at statefarm.com. Today's show is also brought to you by Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. The new action adventure game from Respawn Entertainment coming November 15th. Taking place between Star Wars Revenge of the Sith and Star Wars A New Hope, players will wield a lightsaber, hone their force powers, and adventure across the galaxy in hopes of rebuilding the Jedi Order. Become a Jedi on November 15th in Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. Available on Xbox One, PS4, and PC. Rated T for T. A new apprentice you have, Emperor? Or should I call you Darth Sidious? Master Yoda, you survived. Surprised? Binge Mode's adult content blinds you, Master Yoda. Now you will experience the full powers and dark side. I have waited a long time to tell you that binge mode also contains spoilers. Alas, the Jedi are no more. Not if anything to say about it. I have. At an end, your rule is. And not short enough it was. And now, Binge Mode. You were the chosen one! It was said that you would destroy the Sith, not join them! Bring balance to the Force, not leave it in darkness! my co-host. <laughs> I loved you. And welcome to Binge Mode Star Wars. Proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Oh, yeah. I'm Mallory Rubin, editor-in-chief of TheRinger.com. Oh! What a great website. Joining me today, now that he's finished massacring the younglings. It's a tough look for a guy who's <laughs> like, that's not the Jedi way five <laughs> minutes prior, but that's fine. It's a Ringer Senior Creative. Your Jedi Master, Jason Concepcion. That's right, Mal. Not even the younglings survived. But you know what did? Binge Mode Star Wars. Mm. Where we're exploring the Skywalker saga films and the anthology films and numerous other facets of a galaxy far, far away from character studies, 
on iconic Star Wars archetypes to discussions of the Mandalorian, chats about comics and merch and iconography and more, all leading up to the release of Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker on December 20th. Please make the journey to Kashik with us by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate and review us. Give us those five-star ratings. <laughs> or we'll execute Order 66. <laughs> Please also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans, which is an excellent place to vote on your personal favorite Palpatine evil head turn. A lot of choices. <laughs> no shortage of options. All he does is turn his head evilly. And please head to theringer.com slash shop. Check out our binge mode merch suitable for a night in the opera. With Palpy. Leave us. Last time on binge mode, we dove into your holograms on another edition of Ask the Underscore. And today, we're diving deep. Deep. Search deep into your feelings. Into 2005 Star Wars Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. The final installment in the prequel trilogy, a.k.a. the good one. <laughs> As always, spoiler warning, we will be going deep. Deep! On details from this film and the entire Star Wars saga to date. Uh. Taking official canon and legends, hashtag not canon, into account. So say goodbye to your mentor and your wife and also your skin and your limbs. A barbecue out there. <laughs> because it's time to head to Mustafar. Jason. Yes. Good is a point of view. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. And it's such a big one today. We have so much to talk about that we're skipping the crawl today. We're going to go right into the theme. So let's search our feelings. Use the force. The defining theme of this episode is the seduction of the dark side. All right, before we get into the plot, let's just do a little big picture talk. Coming off Phantom Menace, coming off Attack of the Clones, people are like, boy, is Star Wars good. (laughs) (laughs) And then Revenge of the Sith, the good prequel. Right. Now, some people say that in a mocking fashion, like, oh, it's the good one and it still sucks. I mean, I think that that's a fair critique, honestly. In the context of the prequels, it's the good one. However... Some people quite like this movie. And like, folks, like yourself. You're listening to one of them. <laughs> Great movie. I love it. I just love a villain origin story. I'm sorry. 80% of critics agree. This had an 80% score on Rotten Tomato, which is actually kind of astonishing to look back at and revisit. It's surprising. That's high. It is surprising. The reception of the previous two movies, I think, plays into this. I do think people were like, man... I work in this industry. We got to make sure this, let's pump it up. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm primed to like this movie, but it is a good movie. I agree. 66% audience That's interesting. A lot of people out there, many complaints, but a lot of people out there just basically like hashtag not my Vader, right. you know? <laughs> I don't want my Vader to be crying no about his one girlfriend not being his girlfriend anymore. <laughs> Critical sampling. How'd our boy Raj feel about it. Roger Ebert said at the time that George Lucas, quote, comes full circle in more ways than one and that revenge is, quote, great entertainment. Kirk Honeycutt, the Hollywood reporter, wrote, quote, the final episode of George Lucas's cinematic epic Star Wars ends the six movie series on such a high note that one feels like yelling out, rewind. Indeed. And A.O. Scott, the New York Times, quote, this is by far 
the best film in the more recent trilogy. Hell and yeah. also the best of the four episodes Mr. Lucas has directed. Then wow. perhaps <laughs> tiptoeing in Mustafarian hot take territory, he continues, quote, that's right. Oh my and God. my inner 11-year-old shudders as I type this. It's better than Star Wars. Iconic. A.O. Scott, come on the hottest take. <laughs> That's a lot. I love it. It is not better than A New Hope. <laughs> Stop it. That is a lot. Good movie. It's definitely not true, but it does speak to, again, how thirsty people they really were to, they wanted for, for one of these prequel movies to land, for it to hit. And while there are plenty of nits to pick, at the end of the day, it's a very satisfying conclusion that is ultimately not a conclusion. It's a beginning. It's the thing that ushers in the movies that all of us had already grown to love. Lucas had been writing it while Attack of the Clones was still being produced. Filming began in 2003. It debuted in May of 2005. And the title, Revenge of the Sith, a nod to the almost title for Return of the Jedi, which was supposed to be called Revenge of the Jedi, until very, very, very late in the game yeah. when Lucas changed it. You can still see poster images of Revenge of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. Selling currently for $5,000 on eBay. Should we get one? Yeah. <laughs> Film is obviously quite a technological feat, much like the other movies in the prequel. While you could critique certain aspects of the plot or the dialogue, it was hard not to look at it and say, holy shit, yeah. movies. Yeah. According to uh, the Within a Minute DVD extra, nearly a thousand artists worked on this. Astounding. Just incredible how many hours and how many people went into giving us the duel between Anakin and Obi-Wan on Mustafar, for example, the battle between Yoda and Palpy. Everything we see in this movie was the product of not only the hours that went into it in the couple years that they were actively making it, but Again, remember what we've been talking about in the first couple movies here. This is the story that George Lucas wanted to tell from the beginning, the the tragedy of Anakin Skywalker. This had been in the works for decades in his mind. And that all netted out in quite a dark and mature story. And I think that was something that a lot of people appreciated. It's the first Star Wars film to receive PG-13 rating. And that's ultimately, I think, a very good thing for the franchise. While George Lucas will be the first to say, these are movies for kids. And in many ways, they are. And that's a beautiful, wonderful thing. There are movies for everyone, and if you're going to explore the battle between good and evil and the battle within, you have to be willing to lean into what that really looks like, and this movie did. This movie came out in 2005, and it contained some pretty overt political commentary Mm -hmm. to uh, events of the day, specifically the Bush administration and the United States war on Iraq. People have been analyzing and politicizing Star Wars since basically the moment the opening crawl appeared on movie screens, of course, and the themes and plot of the original trilogy, A New Hope in particular, a ragtag band of warriors fighting a desperate war against a superpower with weapons of mass destruction, were influenced in large part by the anti-war movements of the 60s. By the 80s, it was politicians who were co-opting the language of Star Wars. Ronald Reagan famously referred to the Soviet Union as the evil empire. And the nickname for the Strategic Defense Initiative Project, an experimental, never-completed space-based missile defense system, first announced by Reagan in a 1983 speech, was Star Wars. Mm-hmm. In 2002, for those of you heads that will remember, during the run-up oh, to yeah. Iraq War, there was a Photoshop of the Attack of the Clones poster, which was an absolutely ubiquitous sight on 
lampposts uh-huh. and around college campuses and in cafes. It replaced the movie stars with Bush administration officials. And the text reads, quote, the Bush administration in association with the other Bush administration presents Gulf Wars, episode two, clone of the attack. Now, Revenge of the Sith certainly contains the most timely political commentary uh-huh. of any of Lucas's films up to that time. On November 6, 2001, President Bush, in a joint news conference with then-President Jacques Chirac, rejected the idea that there could be shades of gray in the conflict against terror. Quote, over time, it's going to be important for nations to know they will be held accountable for inactivity, the president said. You are either with us or against us in the fight against terror. Lucas quite specifically calls back to this line in Sith when Anakin battling against his mentor Obi-Wan says, if you're not with me, then you're my enemy. And Obi-Wan, seemingly speaking with Lucas's voice here, replies, only a Sith deals in absolutes. Mm -hmm. Now, even the venue for the debut of Sith seemed consciously chosen by Lucas to draw the focus on the political commentary of the film. He chose to have Sith debut in France at the Cannes Film Festival in front of an audience, which is always receptive to critiques of American power. The New York Times wrote at the time, quote, alluding to Michael Moore's remarks about Fahrenheit 9-11 at Cannes a year earlier, Mr. Lucas joked, maybe the film will awaken people to the situation. He continued, the parallels between what we did in Vietnam and what we're doing in Iraq now are unbelievable. All right. Well, that is obviously fascinating. Let's let's dive into the plot because this is a rich text, this film. Sure is. Lots to talk about in The Darkness Calls. The film opens three years after the Clone Wars began, and we are right away, we're in the throes of battle. It is chaos. The fight rages over Coruscant. Republic forces, separatist troops are blasting each other to bits right above the capital, and the scale is impossible to ignore. The darkness is blanketing a city defined by life and light, and Anakin and R2 are crushing it. Obi-Wan is getting his kicks in, too. This is where the fun begins, Anakin says. And there's a smile on his face. Mm -hmm. He's still, at this moment, the precocious prodigy who can't wait to show off. He's still in the light. Anakin and Obi quickly find themselves in peril with Obi constantly complaining that he hates to fly, which is not what you want to hear from a guy in the midst of a space battle. Pour one out, must be said. Pour one fucking out. For Obi's droid, R4, who got absolutely cut up awful by the insectoid buzz droids. R2, of course, with ease and contempt, zaps his the buzz droids off of Anakin's ship. Hold on, Anakin, you're going to get us both killed, Obi-Wan says, and he's eventually, ultimately, not going to be wrong. But here there's like a really sweet moment, especially in retrospect, Mm -hmm. knowing what's about to happen. Obi's overcome, about to concede defeat, but Anakin just last film had to be convinced <laughs> by Padme to go rescue his master. He's fine. He told me to stay here. Refuses to leave Obi-Wan behind. I'm not leaving without you, master, he says. And we need moments like this where we see their bond before it is irrevocably broken. Yes. They finally make their way aboard Grievous's flagship. And with the aid of some... A very impressive gymnastics. Obi-Wan just springing right into a flip out of his cockpit. They cut their way through the B-1 battle droids. What else is new, obviously? And again, <laughs> again, we get to see Anakin's heart on display here when R2 finds himself besieged by the B-2s and thus unable to instantly respond to Obi-Wan because he's busy 
pissing on his foes with oil excretions. Anakin defends him. He says, no loose wire jokes. Obi-Wan's like, did I say anything? And Anakin says, he's trying. And he, he yeah. it's just really so tender and precious. He loves R2 and we're reminded about the affection that he has for those that he loves and those who are his companions. And the mission that they are on is a critical one. Yes. The Chancellor has been taken hostage by General Grievous. But they also sense two other things happening as well. Dooku mm-hmm. is in the area and there's a trap. Dooku, we learned from Grievous, knew the Jedi would come. But we know, of course, that Dooku isn't the only one who's really in charge. He reports to his master, the Sith Lord Darth Sidious, who is the Chancellor, Sheev Palpatine, who has engineered this entire thing. And yet who, until he reveals himself later in this film, is always doing so from the shadows with incredible patience and timing. Yeah, this sequence actually is a really great window into considering the depths of Palpatine's subterfuge. Think about the methodical nature by which he tended this garden of evil, revealing himself only when necessary, keeping myriad seeds in the shadow regarding his true identity, even as his alter ego was just watering them, consistently watching them flower. Grievous, taking orders not only from Dooku, but as we see in this film, directly from Darth Sidious, does not know that his prisoner Palpatine and his boss, Darth Sidious, are the same person. In the film, it's fairly easy to interpret events this way or to at least wonder if that's the case. But it's also possible to wonder if it's an elaborate ruse with Grievous, just like Dooku, in the know about the trap that he was Mm -hmm. helping to set. But we have a couple of sources beyond just this film that go into the area of proof beyond interpretation from Legends canon. One, in the Revenge of the Sith novelization from Matthew Woodring Stover, we get this from Grievous's inner monologue, quote, Skywalker had stashed the Chancellor somewhere. That sniveling coward Palpatine was probably trembling under one of the control consoles. So pretty clearly, he derides Palpatine. It's like a Star Wars undercover boss. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Have you seen the Kylo Ren SNL undercover yes. boss skit? Great yeah. stuff. He views Palpatine as the figurehead of the Republic government that he and the Separatists are trying to defeat. He is, has no idea that his target and his overlord are one and the same. Another bit of evidence comes from Star Wars Clone Wars, the now decanonized Tartakovsky micro-series. In that, Sidious orders Grievous to capture Palpatine. And at one point during the very involved, very thrilling and very violent kidnapping effort, Grievous threatens Palpatine directly. I'm not afraid of you, Palpatine boasts. You wouldn't dare harm the Supreme Chancellor of the Republic. Whatever would your master say? And Grievous replies, you're lucky they want you alive. He has no idea Mm -hmm. that he's holding the key part of the they right there in his hands. This is a truly remarkable showcase for Palpatine's confidence and command and discipline. And that discipline and confidence, it must be said, is on full display— As Palpatine, cool as a fucking cucumber, (laughs) sits handcuffed in a chair Mm -hmm. as his apprentice, secretly his apprentice, and his future apprentice face off in a life or death duel with Dooku once again battling Obi-Wan and Anakin. He's just like one degree removed from the popcorn meme. It's unbelievable. He's having a blast. Can we just look at this guy for a second? (laughs) Chancellor Palpatine, Obi-Wan says, Sith Lords are our specialty. Oh, my God. 
trademark Jedi hubris on display for you folks. He's saying that <laughs> to the main Sith Lord <laughs> who has created this entire crisis. Tough look for my guy. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Anakin wants to get in on the boat too. My powers have doubled since the last time we met, Count. Can we get sick it? brag, bro. Sick, <laughs> all right, chill, bro. God, do you even force lift, bro? Do we like? Can we get a? Can we get an actual? What are the stats on? I this? know we need to like put him through Jedi Combine. I know. Like, how many seconds has he shaved off his Come forty on. time? Give me a break. Duker's response plays like what's trash his new vertical talk. leap? But there's some foreshadowing here. Good. Twice the pride, double the fall. Yep. Anakin's pride, of course, isn't the only source of his undoing. His love for Padme and the fear and anger those feelings spark are the primary drivers, which we will discuss at length. But it's a part of it. He's so easily manipulated, in part because he believes he can not only be great, but better than everyone who has failed him and better, actually, than anyone who's ever lived. That he can unlock the mysteries of the universe that no man however powerful, is ever meant to meddle with. As they duel, Dooku dispenses once again with Obi-Wan with ease. It's troubling. (laughs) It's concerning. Anakin takes on Dooku solo after Obi-Wan is out, and Dooku does his best Cliff's Notes reading of the hate-anger creed. I sense great fear in you, Skywalker, he says. You have hate. You have anger. He's (laughs) He's really going for the efficient version of it. You have hate. You have anger but you don't use them. And that last line is key. Once again, allows us to consider the differences between the Jedi and the Sith. The Sith are evil and corrupt, but they win you to their cause by allowing you to embrace the core emotional elements of human existence. What if you didn't have to run away from your fear Mm -hmm. or hide your anger or try to grapple with the shame of your advisors telling you that what you're feeling is wrong? What if you could not only embrace those things, but channel them, use them, as Dooku says here, for gain. It is quite a sales pitch. It's a great pitch, honestly. Palpy is, of course, watching this unfold like theater, which for him it actually is. Yes. He may be a nominal prisoner, but he's in essence the director of these events. Dooku doesn't know the fate that awaits him, though rule of two Sith leanings and Palpatine's rule of one creed in particular always made his position vulnerable, which he surely knows. He thinks until his final moments that he's vital to Sidious's plans, not just another dispensable cog in his machine. That illusion fades quite quickly. Anakin mirroring both Dooku's severing of Anakin's arm in Attack of the Clones and Anakin's eventual severing of Luke's hand in Empire slices off Dooku's hands. And as Dooku, a look of complete shock (laughs) on his face crumples to his knees, Anakin grabs Dooku's red lightsaber, and we get an overt but still powerfully symbolic mm-hmm. moment here. Anakin, red saber in one hand, blue in the other. Yep. The colors most strongly aligned, of course, with light and dark sides. The prophesy of Savior meant to bring balance to the Force, holding these representations of balance in his mm-hmm. hands, hovering over Dooku, a one-time Jedi great who gave into the darkness with Palpatine. Evil personified, lurking behind him, pulling him into the dark side like a siren drawing a sailor into the depths. Kill him. (laughs) Kill him now. (laughs) And Dooku (laughs) looks up like, wait, what? What? Hold on. (gasps) What? My dude, what? Wait a second. Wait, I thought we were going to Sizzler after this. Like, we had a, what? 
We had a meeting after this. <laughs> so many Google Calendar alerts still. Good bit, but wait, you're really going to kill me? Surely the fact that Sidious is about to order the murder of his own apprentice is running through his mind, and surely in his inner monologue, lamenting, honoring Sidious's orders to dispense of his own apprentice, Ventress, in the Clone Wars series, in order to assuage Palpy's own anxieties about possibly being overthrown before his plans can take full measure, Duca's confusion meets its Mirren Anakin's, who is tormented. But not that tormented. (laughs) I shouldn't, he says. Do it, Palpy insists in his full-on emperor voice. And then that's all it takes. Yep. Anakin has the blades kind of like scissored, Mm -hmm. you know, acting like a scissor on either side of Dooku's neck. And then he just snips and Dooku's head falls off. (laughs) Giving into the hate inside of him, allowing the darkness within to, in that moment, drive him. The idea of whether heroes can kill is an eternal quagmire in fantasy stories. Many superheroes in particular agonize over it, almost to a ridiculous degree at times. Mm -hmm. As with so many other choices, the moral equation often balances out over the matter of intent. That's the crucial matter. Yep. Are you killing to save or to do harm? To protect or to gain? Are you doing it on purpose or was it perhaps an accident? Anakin, in this moment, isn't sure. He's absolutely he is confused. not even sure what's yeah. driving him. He just knows that what he did was wrong. The regret immediately overcomes him, even as Palpatine says that Dooku was too dangerous to live, too great of a threat to remain. I shouldn't have done that, Anakin says. It's not the Jedi way. Yeah, well, like, neither Maybe. is having a secret wife, but, you know. Well, I mean, like, cutting a dude's head off is a little, <laughs> a little much. Palpatine. Working always to win Anakin to his side, tells him the impulse for revenge is natural, my boy. <laughs> Dooku hurt Anakin. Anakin hurt Dooku. Balance. This is a key tactic on Palpatine's part, as so much of his eventual successful sales pitch will hinge on the force that could harm Padme and thus Anakin directly being the thing they need to combat. And he's priming for the future by connecting to the past. He's bringing up Shmi's death at the Tusken Raiders' hands and Anakin's ensuing slaughter of the village of Tusken Raiders, which Anakin has apparently confided in him, giving us a better sense there, a glimpse into their relationship, the trust that they've built. Yeah. Palpatine is trying to convince Anakin that one murder is okay. Sure. By reminding him yeah. of the mass murder that he previously committed and felt was wholly justified. He loved his mother. And they hurt her. He loves Padme, and so he'll want to save her. It all connects for Palpatine, the ultimate puppet master. And as we noted in our Attack of the Clones pod, the original script for Revenge of the Sith included Dooku admitting to orchestrating Shmi's capture, which we can, of course, deduce, like so many other things, he did on Sidious's orders. For years, we're going to get to how many years later— Palpatine has been grooming Anakin, maneuvering the pieces on the board to position Anakin to give in to his anger and feel the power of doing so. The pieces that he uses to maneuver are human beings, and they're the human beings that Anakin loves the most and is thus most likely to corrupt his own nature in order to try to protect. And this is all going on while Obi-Wan... Anakin's mentor, one of the primary Mm -hmm. figures in his life who represents the light side in this struggle that's going on within Anakin, is out of commission, unconscious. But Anakin hasn't forgotten about Obi-Wan. 
He goes to rescue him, even though Palpatine's like, ah, we can leave him. He's he's out. Let's get out of here. Yep. Subtle. Anakin. I like this part. In, in a measure of the growth he's undergone in the time that's elapsed between the previous movie, says his fate will be the same as ours. He's not lost yet. And a moment like this helps foreshadow the how devastating the ultimate choice is in both the end of this movie and Return of the Jedi when even after all seems lost, he's able to push through and do what's wrong and then do what's right. Mm-hmm. A line reading like that, his fate will be the same as ours. There are those moments in the film where you see that Hayden Christensen is a lot better than the dialogue of Attack of the Clones allowed him to be. I 100% agree. He's at, Here's one of my hottest takes. He's not bad in this movie. He's really not. He's awful in clones, but he's not bad in this yeah. movie. Yes, I agree. Padme, on the other hand. The battle droids capture Palpatine, Anakin, Obi-Wan, and R2, and they take them to Grievous, at which point R2 frees them all from their restraints. Like an Here absolute we go again. Lord. Here we go again. Although, we crushing a, it. Like, is this more hagiography from the from the from the, the narrator of the whole from story? From the auditory uh, speakers of, of R2 himself? <laughs> <laughs> For more on that, listen yeah. to our character study on droids, where we got into the theory that R2 is the narrator of all of Star Wars. Yeah. Grievous flees, his ship snapping apart beneath him, and Anakin pilots an emergency landing. And in this and so many other moments, there's this question of, okay, how far is Palpatine willing to let this go? Is he prepared to reveal himself and use the Force to save his own life right. if he needs to? But at the end of the day, he trusts in Anakin and is rewarded. They make it back to Kurson alive, and Palpatine immediately begins to maneuver politically, telling Mace Windu that with Dooku dead, Grievous is now in charge of the Separatist fight and that the Senate will have to support the war as long as Grievous lives. Remember, he's always he has multiple battles going on on multiple fronts here, always, and they're all connected for him. Mace Windu, driven by a desire to end the war, says that the Jedi will make finding Grievous their top priority. Once again, unwittingly playing into Palpatine's hands. He wants the Jedi to send Obi-Wan after Grievous so that he can get Anakin on his own. With Dooku dead, he needs a new apprentice. Anakin exchanges a few words with Bail Organa. Jimmy Smith's hive! Let me just say, Jimmy Smith's continuing to be in these movies after all these, like he's in Rogue One. It's wonderful. Anakin exchanges a few words with Bail Organa who will one day raise Anakin's daughter in secret. But then Padme's ear buns catch his eye. He runs over to her, barely guarded by a pillar. This is this is crazy, by the way. Half the politicians on Coruscant stand feet away. They're in the shot. They're visible in the shot. Broad fucking daylight in the midst of a city that is an entire planet. You gotta be able to execute a stealth mission a little bit better than this. Like you set a time and a place. I'll meet you at 3.30 in the copy room. You don't just start making out yeah. behind a pillar in the middle of the room where everyone can yeah. see you. What are you doing? Again, in broad daylight. Everyone's there. They all just got out of the ship. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. It's wild stuff. Anyway, they hug, they kiss, they declare their love for each other. Anakin wants to fuck on the floor. He's ready to go right there. Right there. He really is. Calling back to some wild scenes from the Tartakovsky uh, Clone Wars short where like Anakin and Padme almost raw fuck in an alley. (laughs) I love that part. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's great. They come very close. <laughs> yeah. I don't care if they know we're married, he says. He doesn't want to live Clearly. this secret life anymore. That The Jedi are making him lead. And Padme, who's previously been comfortable with Anakin expressing his desire for the slaughter of men, women, and children <laughs> on Tatooine, tells him not to say something appalling and absolutely disturbing, <laughs> like letting everybody know yeah. that they're in a secret Yeah, murder's fine, but public declarations of love, that's where she draws the line. And the source of her anxiety quickly reveals itself. Ani, I'm pregnant. Is this where we discuss what kind of birth control these two use? They're using the force out method. <laughs> And by the way, Anakin has grown tremendously as a man (laughs) since we last saw him. Does not cover himself in glory in his response to this news. Tough look for my guy, Anakin Skywalker. He is basically like a frat dude who just heard the words, I'm late. Yeah. Yeah. His face is kind of twitching and quivering. He's blinking a lot. He's looking down. You told me you were on the pill. <laughs> you said that to me. In the te- Let me pull up my text. You texted that to me. <laughs> but eventually, yes. his delight wins out. It does. It does win out. Takes a minute, but it wins Begrudgingly, out. Begrudgingly, he's like, that's wonderful. Then he seems very sincerely happy. Yeah. He tells her it's the happiest moment of his life. Forget about that 30 seconds beforehand. Ignore Just that. erase that. Ignore that. And he really does seem to mean it. Sidious, meanwhile, tells Grievous to move the Separatist leaders to Mustafar. Again, ultimately maneuvering Anakin to the site of his downfall. When he declares that the war is drawing to a close, Grievous asks how that can be with Dooku now dead. And Sidious says his death was a necessary loss. Soon I will have a new apprentice, one far younger and more powerful. Again, ageist, but also, again, evidence. This is all part of his grand design. There is regrettably still nothing at all grand about the Anakin Padme dialogue. This is really rough. Listen, this is a dead horse. We're beating it. Mm-hmm. But it needs to be said. It is an improvement over clones' poisonously cloying exchanges. <laughs> Tough stuff. Anakin, still a stalker, watches Padme brush her hair on the balcony. This is a rough moment. <laughs> and she's like, I want to go home. I want to have my baby uh, back home on Naboo. Quote, we can go to the lake country where no one will know. I was once the queen. Nobody will recognize I'm me. I'm the like, currently the senator. Nobody will figure this out. I'm one of the most famous women on the planet. Nobody will know. It's fine. Crazy. <laughs> Crazy! She's talking about decorating the baby's room. And he resists, nobly, suggesting a red and black color scheme. Then he says, you're so beautiful. This is, And she says, this is agony. It's only because I'm so in love. And he says, no, it's because I'm so in love with you. And she says, so love has blinded you? And honestly, I wish I was blind and deaf in this moment. And then right after this, we cut to Anakin sweating in bed, dreaming about Padme dying in childbirth. 
I do enjoy this shirtless scene, though. I knew you. Were, I knew you would. He looks great, and he said that George Lucas asked him to bulk up between films to show the physical maturation. And let me tell you, we need you to lift. <laughs> it's working. They got him oiled down. It looks great. Grew his hair out. He looks fabulous. His love for her is contrasted directly with his fear of losing her. And that harbinger of his love for her falls heavily. This is the person he desperately wants and needs to protect. This is the thing he wants to prevent, her death. And he won't be able to see any other purpose except that. Since Anakin met Padme in the Are You an Angel days. Are you an angel? She has been... (laughs) Linked to his mother in his mind, in his heart. Finding one meant losing the other. And we get a nice reminder of that link when, as Padme tries to comfort Anakin after his nightmare, he grabs the necklace that she's wearing, which, of course, he made for her as a boy back in the Phantom Menace days. When Anakin dreamt of Shmi's torment in clones, those dreams proved prophetic, just as his earlier dreams from his youth of becoming a Jedi did. He knows that his dreams foretell the future. Interestingly, when Anakin tells Padme about the dream and she asks about the baby's fate, he says he doesn't know. Gotta make that OG trilogy continuity fit. I won't let this one become real, he says. And his effort to honor that promise will be the decisive force and decision in his life, and one of them in the fate of the galaxy, until he comes back to the light in Jedi. It will also, of course, be the very thing that leads to seeing the dream become a reality. The effort to prevent this dream, like so many prophecies in fantasy fiction, led Voldemort, sorry, led Cersei, sorry, led Anakin to ultimately (laughs) fulfill it. She asks if Obi-Wan might be able to help, and he says, ah, we don't need him, and that's planting the seeds right here for the Obi-Wan-centric jealousy that will play such a pivotal role later in the movie. The baby, he says, will be a blessing, and it will be in time for the galaxy and Anakin's soul alike. Anakin goes to meet Yoda to discuss his premonitions. Another, yet another, much more subtle, but another mark of his growth. He is, you know, he was the hothead in the previous episode, and now he's looking for mentorship wherever he can find it. He tells Yoda, they're of pain, suffering, death. He's positioned in a shadow, and the light plays across his eyes, which are not yet lost, but the rest of him receding into darkness. Yoda asks a lot of questions that come up just short of, Fucking Padme, are you? <laughs> Just short. <laughs> Again, Yoda, yeah. what questions are we asking? He's incredibly incurious. Yeah. Can we ask any obvious question? <laughs> you meditate on these? And he warns Anakin that he is straying from the path. Careful you must be when sensing the future, Anakin. The fear of loss is a path to the dark side. But the visions, of course, aren't inherently the cause of Anakin's fear. They're a manifestation of that yes. fear. The fear comes from love, from that attachment, from, in other words, a thing which the Jedi Code very, very strictly forbids. But of course, Anakin's ability to see the future is a factor. Anyone who has that power is burdened with a terrible weight. It's one of the reasons we so fiercely debated whether Bran, who could see the future, should have been in a position Mm -hmm. to rule. Can you lead others if you know their fates? Anakin's story forces us to ask whether we can even lead ourselves. I love thinking about that. Yoda's next bit of council is infinitely more sage. He has a good moment here. He tells Anakin that death is natural. It's part of life. Quote, rejoice for those around you who transform into the force. Mourn them. Do not miss them. Do not. And that is a core idea, the kind of embrace of death and recognition of what the need to combat death can lead to. The difference, in other words, 
between Harry and Voldemort, one able to walk toward death and greet it like an old friend, like the third brother in the tale of the three brothers, the other befouling his own humanity, his own nature in pursuit of the eternal. Do not pity the dead, Harry, Dumbledore tells Harry in Deathly Hallows. Pity the living and above all those who live without love. And that wisdom was exceedingly hard won, gained only after pursuing power and suffering great loss, the kind of loss that shaped his life with regret. But it's the kind of insight, once gleaned, that can forever alter how a person lives life. Yoda's wisdom here is regrettably sandwiched between rebukes rather than empathy. Attachment leads to jealousy. The shadow of greed, that is. While that assessment is on its face fair, it's not reasonable to disentangle Anakin's jealousy from the love in his heart that spawns it. That's not a sensible thing to ask. When Anakin asks what to do, Yoda says, train yourself to let go of everything you fear to lose. That's just... (laughs) What if Dumbledore had told Harry to stop thinking about his mother and father? Yeah. Stop being friends with your friends. Right. Stop caring about Ron and Hermione. Stop mourning Sirius. Think about that for a minute, what that would have led to. And then think about, instead, what we got. In the end... Dumbledore told Harry in Order of the Phoenix as just wave after wave of irrepressible grief coursed over Harry. It mattered not that you could not close your mind. It was your heart that saved you. What if somebody had ever said something like that to Anakin? Anakin goes right from that to a war debrief with Obi-Wan, who's rightly concerned that the Senate is on the verge of granting the Chancellor even more power. Anakin, our budding fascist, absolutely loves it. Well. That can only mean less deliberating and more action. Yikes. Can that be bad? Yes. Obi-Wan, finally sensing the threat here, warns him to be careful of Palpatine, who has requested Anakin's presence for reasons he won't reveal at this time. Obi-Wan's uneasy. And as we know, the Jedi are all about searching their feelings. What do Anakin's feelings tell him about Palpy? Palpy wants to know, I hope you trust me, Anakin. He says without preamble, which is, totally a normal thing to do and he's wearing his i am evil the signs are everywhere just look at me color scheme robe and office of course anakin says palpy wants anakin to be his eyes and ears as his personal representative on the jedi council to spy in other words on the jedi council me a master i'm overwhelmed sir and this is a great hayden christensen line reading and also i think like subtly a Great bit of dialogue that tells you a lot about Anakin. Mm-hmm. He can't wait to actually become a master. He's yeah. always been incredibly ambitious. And being the earmarked representative of the Supreme Chancellor is one thing, but being a master, that's something he has coveted. Again, Palpy is playing Anakin like a fiddle. Anakin wants to rise. He has affection for Obi-Wan, but as you've heard him say, he also thinks Obi-Wan, and by extension the Jedi Council, are and have been holding him back, Mm -hmm. jealous of his power and his potential, standing in his way because they can't take the fact that this young whippersnapper is the chosen one destined to bring balance to the force. This is the most appealing contrast. Do you want the babysitter who lets you eat candy and watch porn or the one who makes you turn out the lights at night? Anakin tells Palpy the council will never abide by this edict. They choose their own masters. And Palpy says, oh, yes, they will. But it's a win for him either way. If they grant Anakin standing, Mm -hmm. he gets his intel straight from the tap. And if they don't, he carves an even further rift between his chosen disciple and the threat that he seeks to eradicate. 
Yoda, predictably, is not into this. He calls Palpatine's power play disturbing. Recognizing that reality about 10 years quicker than he normally would have. And then Mace Windu makes, fair to say, one of the gravest missteps in galactic history. It's fucking great. You are on this council, he says, but we do not grant you the rank of master. To which Anakin replies, what? How can you do this? This is outrageous. It's unfair. And he's slipping very quickly back into angsty Anakin mode here. And Obi-Wan is kind of like got this faintly embarrassed expression on his face. Anakin is always ready to feel maligned, to point out some slight, almost to the point where it's tempting to wonder if this was actually a test for Mace Windu. But the rift between Anakin and Mace isn't the only one growing. The council, thanks to Palpatine's machinations, is spreading apart across the galaxy. Each new seam that opens up is a chance for a new incursion, a new disruption. The search for Grievous has to continue, and Yoda is off to Kashyyyk to help protect the Wookiees. Anakin rants to his mentor after the gathering. It's never been done in the history of the Jedi, he says of being on the council without being given the attendant rank of master. It's insulting. Mm. Obi-Wan tries to convince him that, dude, you're on the council, man. Yeah. It's an honor. Mm -hmm. Classic Obi-Wan from a certain point of view. Anakin's the youngest council member in history. And he tells him, what's more, the council is wary of his proximity to Palpatine. They still don't know he's a Sith, of course, but they do sense some shadiness going on. And certainly, it cannot at this point be missed that he seems to be consistently accruing power. Obi-Wan tells Anakin that the council only approved his appointment because in a mirror structure of what Palps wants from Anakin, the council would like Anakin to inform on Palpatine. Obi-Wan says he's on Anakin's side, didn't want to put him in this spot by asking him to spy, but he's more astute than most in his distrust of Palpatine is very sincere. He stayed in office far beyond his original turn. Obi-Wan notes, the Jedi are loyal to the system of government. And he he swore he'd give that power back. He Listen, he (laughs) seemed very sincere in that moment. And when this is over? The moment we're done. The moment, the very second, I shall hand it back. With a skip in my step and a twinkle in my eye. (laughs) The Jedi, of course, are loyal to the system, not the person. Use your feelings, Anakin. Something is out of place, Obi-Wan says. You're asking me to do something against the Jedi Code, against the Republic, against a mentor and a friend. Mm. That's what's out of place here. Good comeback. It's a good comeback. But, of course, Anakin is forgetting that he eagerly assented to essentially do the same thing against his mentors on the Jedi. Anakin says Palpatine has looked out for him since he arrived on Coruscant as a small boy. Palpatine matters to him, and a threat to people who matter to him is a well-proven way to lead Anakin to rash action and mass murder. (laughs) It's a grave error, fracturing Anakin's trust in the Jedi and Obi-Wan, raising his protective walls around Palpatine. One of the quietly most interesting scenes in the film follows when Obi-Wan is updating Mace Windu and Yoda on Anakin's response to this request, this order. It's very dangerous, Mace says, putting them together. I don't think the boy can handle it. I don't trust him. And Obi-Wan says, with all due respect, Master, is he not the chosen one? Right. Is he not to destroy the Sith and bring balance to the Force? Think back to Phantom Menace and Qui-Gon positioning Anakin as such to all of them and how forcefully they rejected that idea at first. 
So the prophecy says, Mace replies. And Yoda says a prophecy that misread could have been. Obi-Wan is sure, sure that he can rely on Anakin. He will not let me down. He never has. Now, they are collectively putting too much stock in the prophecy and in the Jedi Order at once, sort of weirdly making the same mistake in the latter case that they worry they might be making in the former case. They're putting too much emphasis in words and belief. Where does that lead you? No one has this conversation with Anakin, at least not in this way. And maybe they can't, but they're trying to protect the Republic. They're trying to stave off an evil from the dark side, and they're approaching it by inadvertently too often mirroring the thing they fear by operating in the shadows, trying to achieve their end by whispering, by scheming, by withholding some sort of information or concern. I love this kind of theme. It, you know, it's in Harry too, where, you know, you have to be careful about the enemies you choose mm-hmm. because they bring something out in you. They, you end up becoming much like them in your efforts to fight them. Anakin seems to be thinking something similar. Hand on Padme's belly, he tells her he's worried about the future of the Jedi and the ideals of the Republic. And Padme asks if he's considering that they might be on the wrong side, not with the Jedi, but in defending the Republic. What if the Republic has, quote, become the very evil we've been fighting to destroy? He tells her she's sounding like a separatist, but she plows on, asking him as the closest to the Chancellor to cease the war in favor of diplomacy. And now he's miffed at her as well, not just because, as he notes, it's actually her job as a senator, because it's one more person he thought he could trust who's now asking him to do something that feels off to him. Padme doesn't want to fight. She wants to stroke Anakin's newly bulked up chest and luxuriate in their honestly troubling love. Hold me like you did by the lake on Naboo so long ago when there was nothing but our love. No politics, no plotting, no war. It was in the middle of a war, but that's fine. There was, of course, never such a time, and the failure to recognize that is part of the shared issue. Yes. Anakin can't stay to chat, though. He's got a date night with someone else. Palpy! It's a night with the Phantom Menace at the opera. And this is inarguably one of the best and our favorite scenes in Star Wars history. The term chewing the scenery really exists for Ian McDermott's performance in this scene. Anakin's good friend, Sheev. Tells him that they found Grievous in Utapau, and now Anakin is deeper in his web, deeper in the darkness. He can cough up Grievous as a sacrifice. He has Anakin. That's all he needs. The Jedi would be committing malpractice, Palpatine says, if they don't send Anakin to kill Grievous. He's priming the pump here once more for dissatisfaction and distancing. You're the best choice by far, he says, projecting his own views on Anakin's worth as his apprentice. Leave us. He tells his water bubble box He's Totally, mates. totally normal. Again, acting like a totally normal dude. <laughs> leave us. And he's echoing the guards leave us yes. line that he'll dispense says the Emperor in Return of the Jedi when he's trying to lure Luke to the dark side. You want <laughs> Take your Jedi weapon and strike me down. Now, Palpatine's full seduction begins. Mannequin. <laughs> You know I'm not able to rely on the Jedi Council. This is great. He tells Anakin that the Jedi want to control the Republic. Now, this is false, of course. They don't want political power as such, but he's correct that they are poised to betray him Mm -hmm. and that they don't want 
him specifically in yes. power any longer, which, by the way, is longer than is allowed mm-hmm. usually by law. Enter the evil head turn, an iconic prequel meme still going strong to this day. Evil head turn number one. Anakin, search your feelings. Evil head turn number two. You know, don't you? He accuses the Jedi of not trusting democracy, the very thing he is trying to tear down, which is a classic authoritarian leader move, which is to blame others for the thing that you are in fact doing. Anakin says his trust in the Jedi has been shaken. Chief asks why? Oh, why? While doing his third evil head turn, Palpatine then frames the Jedi's request as dishonest, unabashedly ironic from the person assuming a secret identity and orchestrating a shadow plot a thousand years in the making. But that's the brilliance of the thing. Remember back to your early teachings, all who gain power are afraid to lose it. Head turn! Even the Jedi. Again, classic Palpy. You can't help but applaud it. He's using logic that describes his actions to a T and wielding it against his foe. It's weaponized projection and misdirection. Incredible. Again, think of Deathly Hallows and Dumbledore's words. It's a curious thing, Harry, but perhaps those who are best suited to power are those who had never sought it. Those who, like you, have leadership thrust upon them and take up the mantle because they must and find to their own surprise that they wear it well. Uh The reluctant leaders tend to be the rewarded ones in fantasy stories. Anakin and Palpatine clearly crave glory. Man, I love that. Although at least Palpatine, Palpatine does have the self-awareness at least to understand that he must do the minimum to appear as if he doesn't want the power. He's just biding his time though. Yeah. He'll literally shout, Power unlimited power in mere minutes. Yes, but the, don't forget when when uh, when the junior senator from Naboo <laughs> yes put forward the motion that gave him it's true Thanks, emergency Jar-Jar. powers. He was oh, oh oh yes, and I will of course return these the moment the crisis has passed. He's an expert at executing the farce. Yes, he truly he is. is. Anakin protests here that the Jedi use their power for good. He's still in the Jedi camp for now. Palpatine's rejoinder here is quintessential villainy, quintessential fantasy storytelling, quintessential philosophy. Good is a point of view, Anakin. Mm. Now, it's not only a callback to Obi-Wan's from a certain point of view line to Luke in Jedi regarding Anakin's true identity, but a reminder that perspective is a fickle foe and that the villain, of course, as we talk about time and time again, always thinks he's the hero. And the real heart of the matter here is that Palpatine kind of has a point in this case. The Sith and the Jedi, he says, are similar in almost every respect, including their thirst for power. The Sith rely on their passion for their strength, Anakin says. They think inwards, only about themselves. And the Jedi don't, Palpatine replies. And I would say that of all the head turns, this is the all-timer. There's one other in a few seconds that's up there, but this is the all-timer. This is the one that you tend to see out there on Twitter and gift form basically every day. Now, on the one hand, this is classic my good friend Tom, my good friend Sheev shit yeah. here. Palpatine might as well be standing over Ginny's cold and nearly lifeless body <laughs> like Tom Riddle was screaming, I'm the Dark Lord and I'm about to steal your wand. But the most compelling cases contain at least a grain of truth yes. and Palpatine's does, in part because it's built not on Jedi-specific reasoning but on human nature. People want 
They want power. They want love. They want sex. They want life. They want more, always. And the thing they want most of all is to be able to say that out loud and not feel bad about it, to be with someone who tells them it's okay. That's human nature. And Mm -hmm. Palpatine's appeal hinges on letting Anakin drink that in. When Anakin responds that the Jedi are selfless, they want to help people, Palpatine readies his coup de grace. Mm. So good. I love this scene. Did you ever hear the tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise? No. No. I thought not. It's not a story the Jedi would tell you. It's a Sith legend. Can I stop you? Yeah. Can we retroactively give him an Oscar for this? He's amazing. (laughs) This is so good. He's honestly just like having a ball. Oh my God. Everybody out here is like fucking in agony and wondering what's going on. And like, and he's just like, this is fucking great. Darth Plagueis was a Darth Lord of the Sith, so powerful and so wise. He could use the force to influence the midichlorians to create life. (laughs) Evil head turn mm-hmm. an incredible smirk. He had such a knowledge of the dark side, he could even keep the ones he cared about from dying. Anakin says he could actually save people from death. <laughs> and now we get an all-time mm-hmm. Star Wars line. Mm-hmm. The dark side of the Force is a pathway to many abilities <laughs> some considered to be unnatural. It's so fucking good. Anakin asks, what happened to him? And Palpy, smiling knowingly, dotting in the requisite evil head turns as he goes, says that Plaguey became so powerful, he feared only one thing, losing his power, which eventually, of course, he did. This foreshadows Palpatine's own fate when his greed as hubris will make him susceptible to his own apprentice, Vader, killing him, just as Palpatine himself once killed his master, Darth Plagueis. Unfortunately, Palpatine continues here, he taught his apprentice everything he knew, and then his apprentice killed him in his sleep. It's ironic. He could save others from death, but not himself. Now, Palpatine is reminiscing fondly on his own come-up here, very much in the way that the winners of the Elder Wand can't help but brag about it, thus making themselves susceptible, making themselves targets to the bloodlust that the Elder Wand leaves in its wake. Is it possible to learn this power, Anakin asks, and his good friend, Sheev, turns his head and says... Not from a Jedi. It's a delicious line, a delicious scene, rich in connections to the past and portents for both the immediate and distant future. And it's also responsible for one of the great theories in Star Wars fandom that Palpatine or Plagueis actually fathered Anakin using this unparalleled knowledge of the Force and ability to control the midichlorians to impregnate Shmi, who, as she told Qui-Gon in Phantom Menace, did not conceive Anakin Through the typical means, there was no father, she said. Did Plagueis make Anakin? Did Palpatine, after learning from Plagueis and killing him? Fans have long speculated, and obviously either scenario would be a horrendous violation of Shmi. In the comic, Darth Vader number 25, we get more fuel than ever for the theory that Palpatine is the one, that he manipulated the midichlorians to create Anakin. In the comic, Anakin travels into the dark side Locus beneath Fortress Vader, more on that later, and sees Palpatine manipulating the force around the pregnant Shmi with the words, there was no father, and unnatural, and the chosen one splashed across the page. And Anakin sees other visions in this sequence that prove true, like his son, Luke. But he also sees visions here that are not true, like Yoda's murder. And that gives us cause to pause and doubt. 
Now, maybe this reflects a confirmation of the theory. Maybe it reflects Anakin's psyche processing the possibility. But we have another bit of information to call on here, too. The original script for Revenge of the Sith, which prior to the cuts, included Palpatine telling Anakin that he's responsible for his conception. Anakin denying it, and Palpatine giving his version of the search your feelings you know it to be true speech that Vader will ultimately give to Luke in Empire. Parallels always present in this series. Now, again, that could have been the truth or one of Palpatine's many manipulations. We still don't know for sure, mm-hmm. but there's ample evidence. Anakin tells the council that Grievous is on Utapau, and the council moves immediately, just as Palpatine intended. They send Obi-Wan, removing him from Anakin's sphere, leaving Anakin now more vulnerable than ever without his mentor to rely on. Before Obi-Wan goes, Anakin apologizes for disappointing him. You are strong and wise, Anakin, and I'm very proud of you. I have trained you since you were a small boy. I've taught you everything I know. Ah, that's what Palpy said Plaguey did with his apprentice before his betrayal. And you have become a far greater Jedi than I could ever hope to be. He counsels patience, though, and they part as friends. But within seconds, Anakin's face falls and the gloom sets back in. His jealousy also rising. His next dream of Padme's childbirth features Obi-Wan. And when he sees Padme in her chambers and asks if Obi-Wan has been there, his jealousy is palpable. Mm-hmm. Anakin reveals to Padme that he's struggling, straying from the Jedi path. Something's happening. I'm not the Jedi I should be. I want more. And I know I shouldn't. He tells her that he found a way to save her from the dreams he's been having. He promises her once again. He's more fervent than ever. And now his determination is inextricably linked with his notion of the Jedi losing faith in him and him in them. When Obi-Wan arrives on Utapau, he learns the Grievous is present holding the locals hostage, and he calls for Cody, who, minutes prior, had said, come on, when have I ever let you down? And that's some nice Order 66 foreshadowing there. Obi-Wan rides on Boga, a Varactyl, hunting for Grievous, and he finds him. <laughs> Surrounded by the Trade Federation and his thousands of battle droids, and he attacks Grievous, bragging about his Jedi arts training under Dooku's wing. Not a Force user, but boy, can he whip those lightsabers. And he takes out four of them. He steals them from Jedis that he's defeated, and they duel. And it's a pretty dope scene. The lightsabers are scratching the floor as Grievous walks. The clones arrive, and war breaks out. And crucially, with Obi-Wan here, Yoda on Kashyyyk, etc., the clones and the Jedi are spreading out further and further across the galaxy, facilitating Palpatine's ability to soon flip the Order 66 switch at exactly the right moment and take out the Jedi when they are isolated, alone, vulnerable, without reinforcements. Mace instructs Anakin to inform Palpy about Obi-Wan heading to Utapau to engage with Grievous in order to read Palpy's reply. I sense a plot to destroy the Jedi. <laughs> Mace nice. says as Anakin exits. Nice of you to catch up. Amazing. Quick study as always, Mace Windu is. The dark side of the force surrounds the Chancellor. Mundi says that if Palpy doesn't hand over his emergency powers after Grievous falls, as remember, he promised he would so soon after he didn't need them, then he should be removed. Mace says the Jedi would have to assume temporary control in that case to ensure a smooth transition to whoever comes next. Why he or anyone thinks this remains unclear. Presumably other politicians could also step up. There's no, like, vice chancellor. Like, right. why this does is it have- very, This is very strange. It's very strange, and you can see why Anakin certainly would find it suspicious. Yoda thankfully notes that such thinking is dangerous. It's also, of course, what Palpatine warned Anakin about. But Yoda doesn't reject that course of action flat out. He says instead that they must take great care. In other words, 
We're meditating again, folks. Of course. <laughs> of course we are. It's never led them astray before. Never. It should be fine. Anakin goes to Palpatine's office. Our good friend Sheev immediately launches into nudging Anakin again, kind of gaslighting him here into resenting the Jedi for holding him back, not making him master, not trusting him, but also calling on reality a bit. I know there are things about the Force that they're not telling me, Anakin says. They don't trust you, Anakin. They see your future. They know your power will be too strong to control. Now, the irony here, of course, is that it will be too strong for Palpatine to control, too. And at last, with his mark fully primed, Anakin ready for the darkness to envelop him in its warm embrace, Sheev Palpatine, our good friend, yes, reveals his true purpose. Let me help you know the subtleties of the Force. Not the dark side. Not the evil, not the hidden thing, the subtleties, the precise delicacies that only the worthy can see. That's, That's right. very savvy phrasing and a very savvy approach from Palpatine. That's right. How do you know the ways of the Force, Anakin asks? Really, again, just channeling Harry, like, Tom, can you hand me my wand? Anakin, he's a Sith Lord. That's how. <laughs> but Palpatine is about to catch him up, thank God. My mentor taught me everything about the Force, even the nature of the dark side. You know the dark side? <laughs> Yeah. Do you think, what do you think the clue was when he held forth about a legendary Sith Lord at the opera? <gasps> this is like, do you think that was a big clue? What's worse, this or them asking if Dooku could be a Sith after he was like, do you want to be a Sith? Do you want to be a Sith? <laughs> you want to join up with me as being a Sith? Is Dooku, no, Dooku, it can't be Dooku, not oh, Dooku. God. Anakin, if one is to understand the great mystery, Palpatine continues, one must study all its aspects, not just the dogmatic, narrow view of the Jedi. If you wish to become a complete and wise leader, you must embrace the larger view of the Force. Anakin is circling Palpatine at this point, recognizing him at last for what he is, but also still at one with the light and the Jedi, not yet ready to give in to that pull. Be careful of the Jedi, Anakin, Palpatine says. Only through me can you achieve a power greater than any Jedi. Learn to know the dark side of the Force, and you will be able to save your wife from certain death. Not a subtle pitch, nope. but an effective one. Yes. First, Anakin has one more round of grappling with his inner morality to do. What did you say? <laughs> Use my knowledge. I beg you. You're the Sith Lord, he says, and he ignites his lightsaber. Welcome to the party, Anakin. You're mm -hmm. a decade late, but still... So far ahead of Yoda. It's actually <laughs> insane. He tells Anakin that he knows he's been searching for, quote, a life of significance, of conscience, a life that matters and means something, that isn't confined by the strictures of an institution he no longer believes in. Quote, are you going to kill me, he asks. I would certainly like to, and a great moment here from Sheev. I know you would. I can feel your anger. I love that line reading. I love it. It gives you focus. Makes you stronger. I can feel you. And he sounds fully like the emperor here with the emperor voice. And he also sounds a little bit hard. Kind of turned on. A little bit erect. He's right been now. waiting for this for a while. He has been. It's been years of foreplay, but now he is ready to go to town. He is. Anakin deactivates his lightsaber, but tells Palpatine he's going to turn him over to the Jedi. What a fucking coward move. Mm. Anakin is still caught in the middle of his own desire, still unsure. And that lack of certainty is in some ways the thing he fears the most because he knows it leads to mistakes, to loss, and to pain. I will quickly discover the truth of all this. <laughs> what do you mean? What, what, did you, what more What's do you unclear? need? What's unclear at this point, Anakin? What, you, what, what more do you need? 
he says as much as a pep talk to himself as a threat to sheep. Return we will after word from our sponsors. Binge Mode Star Wars is presented by State Farm. You know those days when it feels like problems just pop out of nowhere? The helpful folks at State Farm do. Like a fender bender when you're already late. Or a thief breaking into your home, making off with your new flat screen TV. Luckily, there are more than 19,000 agents who are there for you. Because when it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents are ready to help. Find an agent today at statefarm.com. Today's show is also brought to you by the Google Assistant. The Google Assistant is ready to help you get more done with just your voice in the car, at home, and everywhere you take your phone. You can ask your Google Assistant to help with routines throughout your day. Say one command, and the Assistant can do multiple things. For instance, once you've set up a morning routine in the Google Assistant app, you can just say, Hey Google, good morning! And the Assistant can take your phone off silent, adjust compatible lights and thermostats, tell you about today's weather, the commute, and what's on your calendar, and then play music or news or even play this incredible podcast. Hey! Right where you left off. A little help, hands-free. Just say, hey, Google, to get started. Hello, back to Binge Mode. On Utapau, meanwhile, Grievous and Obi-Wan are battling, and Obi-Wan is taking some metal on flesh shots here that honestly make his survival a miracle. Yeah. But he's smart. He pulls open the plates guarding Grievous's innards, and when he gets his hands on a blaster, he fires, and he meets that organic vital matter. Shoots again, and he kills the Separatist foe. And then he, like, tosses the, the blaster <laughs> yeah. aside with derision and says, so uncivilized. I mean, why don't you hold on to your fucking lightsaber? <laughs> Cody's going to give it back to him. Don't worry. Back on Coruscant, Anakin finds Mace. I've just learned a terrible truth, he says, giving us faith, even knowing what must inevitably come at the end of this film, that he's at least nominally still aligned with the light. It's an hour and seven minutes into the film, and it's important because we're going to do some math in a minute. Remember that. I think Chancellor Palpatine is a Sith Lord. <laughs> Mostly because he told me he was. Why do we need I think there? I know. There's no, there's Why? no I think. There's no, literally no I think. He said it. <laughs> it's in the transcript. A Sith Lord, Mace asks, and it's like- This it, is unreal. Like it legitimately has never occurred to him. Never. Despite mistrusting Palpy and despite looking- for the Sith everywhere. No one ever made the connection. Anakin tells Mace that he's absolutely sure Palpy is a Dark Force user. He asks to go with Mace to help. For your own good, stay out of this affair. I sense a great deal of confusion in you, young Skywalker. And for once, literally once, <laughs> Mace is correct. He forbids Anakin from joining him, saying that he will have gained his trust only if what he shared proves true. Not a sound strategy. No. The ensuing sequence is... One of the more bizarre stretches in the film, it's it's one of those things where if the Anakin and Padme romance overall worked better, this could be great. But because it doesn't work well, it's kind of just awkward, but still it's charged. You feel the tension. They're both languishing in their respective dwellings, which in this moment feel like cells to them, like cages, keeping them from where they want to be, keeping them from each other. And the score breathes with their anguish. The sun is setting behind Anakin, the red bleeding into the sky as it will soon bleed into his eyes, into his soul, into the kyber crystal of his lightsaber. And Palpatine's words are playing back in his mind. You do know, don't you, if the Jedi destroy me, any chance of saving her will be lost. 
And Padme is looking out the window, looking toward the Jedi Temple, toward Anakin. And he looks out toward her chambers. And they're so close to being together and just being able to talk it out. Avert this catastrophe, the choice that he's about to make. But they're divided by more than space, ultimately. They're divided by all the forces in the world that are intent on keeping them apart. And more than that, intent on leveraging keeping them apart. As the tears fall down Anakin's face, he makes his choice. He sets off for Palpatine's chambers to prevent the source of the life-sustaining knowledge that he seeks from being eliminated. Mace, Kit Fisto, and the gang arrive to slap the cuffs on Palps, and it doesn't go well. Sidious reveals his lightsaber for the first time, as well as some really astounding gymnastic ability. (laughs) Palps slices through everyone but Mace and a blink of an eye. Mm-hmm. But Mace, who has Clone Wars and the Clone Wars help reveal, really is a master swordsman more than holds his own. And I think that's a great point, actually. If you watch the Clone Wars, and this is something we talked about before, Revenge of the Sith really depicts the worst day in every character's life. Mm-hmm. The day they really didn't have their fastball. None yep. of them did. Yep. Mace is, in fact, winning the duel, certainly a ploy on Palpy's part to look vulnerable when Anakin arrives, undeniably, but also a testament to Mace's actual skill. He kicks Palpy's lightsaber out the window and pins him to the ground. But Palpy didn't become a Sith Lord for nothing. Here comes the Force Lightning. Mm -hmm. And we have, of course, seen the Emperor use this to devastating effect in Return of the Jedi. Now we see the role it played in making him the villain who ruled the galaxy for song. Right as Anakin arrives and Mace pins his pal and threatens his arrest, Palpy tells Annie, One more time, that the Jedi are the ones making the power play. And then he unleashes the Force Lightning with his full Emperor voice. This setup mirrors the one with Luke and Palpatine and Vader and Jedi. No, no, you will die! Mace blocks the lightning with his saber. But the effort is difficult, and it's killing both of them. In front of our eyes, Palpatine now, as the lightning is rebounding on him, is transformed from a smooth-skinned, smirking politician into a maimed and mutilated and melted monster, the power required to sustain the Force Lightning, a power that, even when very rarely used by lightsiders, requires tapping into the dark side of the Force. It's breaking down his body, but not his spirit. I have the power to save the one you love, he tells Anakin, watching as the symphony of variables he's juggled for years Come to a fever pitch in this instant. This is the moment where it all will either fall apart or ring true. Now at last we will see the fruit of his work to lure Anakin to the dark side. Save me. Let him die. And together we can save Padme. But Anakin can't be passive. He can't be a passenger. The great irony of this moment is that so much of Anakin's life has been determined by what others wanted from him, feared from him, It expected from him by the shadows of prophecy and destiny. And those led him here to be sure. But ultimately, he has free will. And he has the ability to decide even if he's been fooled, even if his fear has been weaponized against him. He has to take the step down whichever path he'll follow. You, Palpatine says, must choose. And he does. As Palpatine says, he can't hold on any longer. And Mace, seeing Palpatine's strength and his power in full at last, says that he's too dangerous to be kept alive. It's the same language and argument, of course, that Palpatine used to convince Anakin to murder Dooku earlier in the film. But Anakin wants him to stay on trial. Arrested and alive, he can still access that knowledge. Dead, the possibility of learning how to save Padme dies with him. Palpatine's 
pathetic pleas for life, which are, of course, a total farce, hit their mark. And so do Mace's actions. Anakin shouts that he needs the Chancellor alive. And as soon as Mace raises his arms to strike, Anakin slices off his hand. Purple lightsaber, precious thing that it is, sliding out the window. Palpatine shouts, power! This is a wild moment. Which, again, listen, not the most subtle victory speech, but alas, here we are. And he blasts Mace to death with force lightning, leaving him to plummet, just like Anakin's soul, into the black. And Anakin's horrified, asking what he's done. (laughs) Despondent, really overcome with regret and despair. But does he rectify his mistake? Does he work immediately to atone? No, he does not. He cries a little, and then he falls like clay warmed in the fire into Palpatine's waiting, molding hands. You're fulfilling your destiny, Anakin. Become my apprentice, learn to use the dark side of the Force. And Anakin says, I will do whatever you ask. There it is. Go. Just help me save Padme's life, he says. I can't live without her. And Palpatine says, to cheat death is a power only one has achieved. But if we work together, I know we can discover the secret. Now, we know that other Force users like Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan and Yoda, and eventually Anakin himself, learned how to become one with the cosmic Force, interact with the living as Force spirits, Force ghosts. And there are some juicy details in Legends canon to explore in time regarding Palpatine's particular pursuit of immortality, which will have plenty of time and cause to discuss over the course of the pod, including the run-up to Episode Nine, The Rise of Skywalker, given Palpatine's apparent presence in the film. He's in the trailer. He's in the poster. Still, in this moment right here, what Palpatine says is not exactly the sales pitch that he originally made to Anakin. He's like, we got to go figure it out now. I know. Anakin has been deceived, or at least asked to accept this precious knowledge on delay. But now that he's made his choice and let the darkness not only woo, but begin to corrupt him, he's too lost in it to see his way back to the light. I pledge myself to your teachings, he says. And Palpatine says, good, good. Good, good. (laughs) Anakin has made his Faustian bargain, making a deal with the devil, sacrificing the state of his soul to pursue a gain that he doesn't need and shouldn't want. And that is a term, Faustian, that George Lucas used before to describe Anakin's fall because it fits almost perfectly. Anakin's story is all the more tragic because of this specific nature. He has access to so much, to so many, but nothing can quench that thirst for more knowledge, more power, and the ability that those things would bring. Specifically, in this case, the knowledge and power and ability to save Padme, which Palpatine knows and has exploited from the go. The force is strong with you, Palpy says. A powerful Sith you will become. All of a sudden talking like Yoda. Henceforth you shall be known as Darth Vader. And there it is. Yes. The name that so many will fear for so many years, spoken out loud, finally. Assigned not to a vile horror, but to this confused young man who's sad and unsure and afraid. The music Vader score kicks in. Mm -hmm. Thank you, my master. Rise, says, and if you remembered back to your math, this happens at the one hour and 16 minute mark of the film. Only nine minutes (laughs) have elapsed after Anakin fervently swore to stop Palpatine. Incredibly quick, my dude. Yoda feels it. It's amazing. But of course, he will have to meditate on this to figure out what's going on. Palpy, though, is not one to wait 
he's going to exploit his advantage. He tells Anakin the Jedi will kill them and all the senators. And in one of the weaker moments in the film, Anakin, basically for no reason, based on no facts or patterns, is like, yeah, I think that that's right. I don't get this. Palpatine lifts his hood over his ruined face and seeks to make his next move. The Emperor is rising from the darkness. And he tells Anakin that every Jedi, even Obi-Wan, is an enemy of the Republic. They want to take over the Republic. They want to subvert it. They must die. Otherwise, this civil war will go on forever, which is exactly what has been unfolding. But alas, in the Clone Wars, we see how long Palpatine has been working on the eradication of the Jedi, even seeking every Force-sensitive child before they can become initiates. We know, as we discussed last week, how expertly and tirelessly he moved to secretly position the clone army for his cause. And now it's time to move his plan into the open. He sends Anakin to the Jedi Temple. There is no time to waste. But even now that he's named Anakin Vader and made him his apprentice and won his Pledge of Loyalty, he's still manipulating him. This is crucial. He'll never stop manipulating him. He tells him to show no mercy. Only then will you be strong enough with the dark side to save Padme. He tells Anakin he has a plan for the other Jedi across the galaxy and orders him to Mustafar after the temple to wipe out the Separatist leaders. That was always just a part of his plot, never his endgame. The Separatists were just one more pawn for him. The Sith, he tells Anakin, will rule. Quote, we shall have peace. And Anakin, of course, will ultimately choose to save Luke and turn on the Emperor and restore balance, bring peace temporarily. This is a tragic fall and a potent reminder that no one is ever fully lost. But we also can't lose sight of the fact that he does too much to ever be completely yes. redeemed. Yes. Some blood just doesn't wash away. And that begins really here. Slaughter some Tuscan Raiders fully right. once. Right. You know, they did. In the throes of emotion, they, they were did holding hold your mother. Prisoner, yes. But slaughter the younglings. Fool me twice. It's very tough. Shame on me. Again, When you watch season five of The Clone Wars and you really get to know the younglings as they uh, go through their training and build Mm -hmm. their first lightsabers after getting their kyber crystals from Ilum, you're like, man, (laughs) Anakin slaughtered these kids. It's very tough. It's very painful here, too. He enters the Jedi Temple, and in a moment that even his staunchest defenders will never really be able to erase, he he murders a room full of the most precious little children, the most precious Force-sensitive younglings, the future of the Jedi Order. And he does it after they look to him for assistance, to save them for guidance, they call him Master Skywalker. They ask what to do. And it is heartbreaking. They look up to Anakin. They need him. One of the cool things about Clone Wars is seeing General Skywalker out there, a leader for all, but he is lost here. The shot of him activating his lightsaber in the room with the yes. younglings with no ambiguity for us of what that means is one of the most harrowing images it's in the awful. entire series. It's Easy awful. to mock. It's absolutely awful. But truly irredeemable can't come back from it. In conjunction, Palpatine pulls the trigger on Order 66. We see him call Cody via hologram, who turns on Obi-Wan, who miraculously survives. We see all across the galaxy, the clones who are with their Jedi generals turn as the chip in their brain, the moment they've really been programmed for all along, turns them from loyal soldiers into lethal foes. And the Jedi fall, it must be said, like wheat before the scythe barely putting up a fight. It is baffling. They're force users. This is just crazy. They do not even sense the threat. And furthermore, when the threat is upon them, they again fall like dominoes. I always think about at the beginning of Empire when Luke doesn't sense that he's about to be mauled. Like, 
the clones are your allies, but also the whole thing with the force is search your feelings. Can't you feel it? Can you feel what's happening? Certainly once the balance the, of the universe is at stake here. Certainly once the chip has been activated, you'd think they'd realize. Anyway. Though the surprise with which the Jedi are taken speaks to what a total and complete betrayal this is. The yes. clones have been their partners in war for years. Right. Three years now. Yoda in the Clone Wars, as we mentioned previously, talks about how what incredible soldiers they've been and how they've saved their lives many times. They've built bonds, as we see in that series. And it's a tragedy for the clones, too. We see in that series, they're real people with real feelings and unique personalities who are turned in an instant here into almost robotic tools mm-hmm. who lack free will, into pawns on the Emperor's dark board. Yoda's cane falls. And he clutches his heart in his head. Even Mr. Meditate on this knows that something horrendous has happened, that the darkness has fallen over the world. He manages to beat his clones and, with the aid of our dear Chewie, to escape. Padme watches the Jedi Temple burning, and she's fearing for Anakin's safety. She has no idea at this point of his role in this, and she's weeping. Bail Organa, after the feeblest, and so it is, in the history of the galaxy— then sees the clones murder a youngling and realizes what horror has really unfolded. And he works to alert any survivors to the trap awaiting them on Coruscant. And Obi-Wan, having escaped Utapau's uprising, learns from Bail that this has happened everywhere. It's one of the more interesting contradictions of the prequels because mm. we know, going into these movies, that we have to get to where we'll be in episode four. Right. So we know the Jedi Order has to fall. It has to be a legend. The slumbering whisper when Luke rises in A New Hope. So we're expecting this in some form the whole time. It feels inevitable, but that still doesn't minimize the horror of the scope of what's unfolding here. Of course, we get the same thing with Vader. We know that that's where this is all leading, and then we still get to watch it unfold and feel its grip over us. The most powerful force in the galaxy here with the Jedi nearly wiped from existence in a literal instant. Back on Coruscant, Anakin tells Padme that the Jedi have tried to overthrow the Republic leaving his role, of course, in overthrowing the Jedi, out of the story for the moment. She, naturally, is like, what? He tells her he's loyal to the Chancellor and the Republic. And, crucially, her. She's like, well, what about Obi-Wan? Which Anakin will not forget in mere moments. He tells her he's going to Mustafar to end this war. Things will be different, I promise. And he's right about that. But, of course, devastatingly wrong in what form that difference will take. Obi-Wan back with Yoda and Bail, insists on going to deactivate the message in the Jedi Temple, which is calling Jedi from across the galaxy back to the temple under a pretense of peace, but of course, it's an invitation to their slaughter. Yoda agrees, not only to save more Jedi, but to try to figure out what has gone on. The Chancellor has called a special session of Congress, facilitating their entrance into the temple. In the Senate, Chancellor Palps tells the assembled that the Jedi are the threat and will be hunted and eliminated, and his words meet not resistance Cheers. Applause. Uh He announces the formation of the First Galactic Empire, promising safety, security, and after all these years of war, finally unity. So this is how liberty dies, Padme says, with thunderous applause. In the temple, Obi-Wan and Yoda see the carnage. The dead younglings, killed not by clone blasters, but cut apart by lightsaber. If into the security recordings you go, only pain will you find, Yoda tells Obi-Wan in a bid to prevent Obi-Wan from checking the security tapes, Uh Yoda, again, crushing it here. Why (laughs) look at the facts when you can hide from them forever? Why why not just pretend none of this happened? 
<laughs> Yoda, of course, knows it's Anakin. They both do, but Obi-Wan smartly wants to confirm it. Yeah. Unlike many of his Jedi brethren, he doesn't want to hide from these hard truths. They've been doing that for too long. But that doesn't mean he's ready to face this new reality. He tells Yoda to send him to kill the Emperor. How does he know he's the Emperor? You might ask, since this speech is literally taking, Great taking question. place concurrently. Great question. <laughs> but says he won't kill Anakin. Oh, he's like God. my brother. I cannot do it, he says. Twisted by the dark side, young Skywalker has become the boy you trained. Gunny is consumed by Darth Vader. It's a terrible thing that Yoda asks and a terrible thing to see when he's given up Anakin to the dark so easily. But sending Obi-Wan is the ultimate test. If he can't lure Anakin back, there is no one who can. Yes. On Mustafar, meanwhile, Anakin arrives unknowingly at the site of his fall, his transformation, and also his future home. He's going to choose to build a world there because it's the last place that he saw Padme alive. As R2 waits with the ship, Anakin goes to the Separatists and without hesitation, without remorse, follows through on Palpatine's order to eliminate them. Now, these are bad guys, so we're not mourning their loss, but it is unspeakably disturbing to see how easily Anakin is just cutting through rooms full of living beings. He locks them. He locks them in and then butchers them without hesitation. Think of what we know about Horcruxes and Voldemort's transformation from handsome boy to red-eyed snake and how each murder ripped his soul, shattered the integrity, not only of his body, but of his spirit. This is what's happening to Anakin, too. He turns. Mm. He's hooded. He's cloaked in the darkness. But his eyes, we yes. can see, are reddening, just like his soul and just like his saber will one day soon. Obi-Wan heads to see Padme to ask mm. about Anakin's whereabouts. Mm-hmm. And he tells her that her husband, secret husband, has turned to the dark side. I've seen a security hologram of him killing younglings. He, like, literally bites his fist as he's saying <laughs> that. Brutal. Padme, who has heard Anakin confess to mass murder at least once. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's used to it. Well, he did. You know, he is prone to mass murdering. And I yeah, what say. does she say here? I know. It's, it's impossible! impossible! But Obi-Wan says they were all deceived by a lie. Palpatine was behind everything. Padme won't tell Obi-Wan where he was sent. She's loyal to Anakin through all of this still, which only heightens the tragedy of his doubts in just a few minutes. Anakin is the father, isn't he? Obi-Wan asks incredibly like, wow, <laughs> what a fucking, what a leap, Sherlock. Listen, at least he's figuring shit out. No I one know. else is. I'm so sorry. That's a sad moment. Yeah. Without is. Padme realizing it, he boards her ship, knowing she'll take him to Anakin, who blinded by his rage and descent into darkness can't discern truth from lies any longer. And she's brought Obi-Wan there, that she and Obi-Wan are together. Anakin, in other words, it's like half the internet, convinced in an Obi-Padme affair. Obi-Wan told me terrible things, Padme says. This is before Obi-Wan will come off the ship and reveal himself. That you turned to the dark side, that you killed younglings. Obi-Wan is trying to turn you against me, Anakin says. Now, Anakin has always loved Obi-Wan. There is Mm -hmm. real affection there and loyalty, but he's also always viewed him as an impediment to progress, always. Padme's no different from the Jedi Order in this particular sense. Anyone who stands between him and his goal is a threat. When Padme says that all she wants is Anakin's love, he says, love won't save you, Padme. (laughs) I generally love everything about the Mustafar sequence, but this line is tough. 
Only my new powers can do that. It's fucking. <laughs> Still, it's a classic villain moment, a Voldemortian rejection of love as self. And given Anakin's arc, a particularly ironic one. Love is the thing that led him down this path. I won't lose you the way I lost my mother, he says. I'm becoming more powerful than any Jedi has ever dreamed of, and I'm doing it for you, to protect you. And this is where, finally, Padme sees that Anakin has snapped. He says they don't have to hide anymore. They can live in love in the open because he, now more powerful than the Chancellor, has brought peace to the Republic. He's power mad, deranged, completely out of touch with reality. Peace? There are bodies strewn about basically every planet (laughs) in the galaxy. Younglings (laughs) littering the halls of the Jedi Temple. Democracy just bent to tyranny's will. This is not peace. This is horror. And Anakin truly can no longer tell the difference. I can overthrow him, he says. And together, you and I can rule the galaxy, make things the way we want them to be. Remember when we spoke in Phantom Menace? of Anakin's desire to be a pilot and his affinity for building machines and what those things represented. Agency, control. He was a sweet boy, not yet even close to being warped by the dark side, but even then he showed this inclination toward the desire for full control. In the fields of Naboo, he told Padme that he didn't think democracy worked. The signs have been there, but they've always been cloaked in smiles and kisses and declarations of hope and great feats for the good. The darkness in Palpatine and Anakin's own choices melted those things away, just as the lava is about to do with his flesh. The thirst for power has grown exponentially because each new taste of it leads Anakin to crave even more. Obi-Wan was right. You've changed. This is tough. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to hear any more about Obi-Wan. The Jedi turned against me. Don't you turn against me. I don't know you anymore. Anakin, you're breaking my heart. You're going down a path I can't follow. All right, I want to clarify my earlier statement. I love everything between Anakin and Obi-Wan on Mustafar. Not this. Anakin doesn't understand. Because of Obi-Wan? The dark side hasn't only masked him to the light, but to his own knowledge of himself. He doesn't see that his actions and his choices have lost him Padme. It's like, dude, you just killed a gang of kids. She begs him to come back with her and tells him that she loves him. But just then Obi-Wan appears and it's over. Liar! You with him? You brought him in to kill me? You sucked his dick! <laughs> and he begins to force choke Padme. He this loves is, so much. This is horrifying. And in what is... His pregnant wife. His pregnant wife. It's truly an awful moment. The lava hasn't rushed over him yet, but he's already sunk irrevocably to its depths. He is lost. You turned her against me! He shouts to Obi-Wan, who looks at him horrified. You have done that yourself. I love that line. I love that line. They take off their robes, and they both know it's about to go down. You will not take her from me! Your anger and your lust for power have already done that. You have allowed this Dark Lord to twist your mind until now. Until now, you have become the very thing you swore to destroy. And he's completely right. Obi-Wan's lines in this sequence are fucking great. Anakin, of course, has been blinded by greed and lust. And he has become the thing that he hated and was ultimately undone by what he wanted to stop because his hubris led him into a pit that claimed him. If you're not with me, then you're my enemy. Only a Sith deals in absolutes, which is a chilling moment. Yeah. I will do what I must. You, you will, will try. try. <laughs> and they draw their lightsabers, blue ah. against blue, teacher against student, master against Padawan. Anakin's outward form not yet matching 
what he has truly become inside. So good. As their duel is unfolding on Mustafar, Yoda is confronting the Emperor on Coruscant. Your arrogance blinds you, Master Yoda, Darth Sidious says, showing the same inclination as Anakin to describe his own circumstances without realizing that he's doing so. And Sidious calls Yoda my little green friend, which is not appropriate. At last, he says, the Jedi are no more. <laughs> not if anything to say about it, I have. <laughs> there are moments when Yoda's sentence construction just doesn't work, it's and that's one no. of them. <laughs> not the most elegant comeback from him, but he's ready to duel at least, and he's talking shit, he's trading barbs, he pulls his lightsaber with really enviable courage here. He's ready to do what he must. Palpatine's not afraid, though. In fact, he's laughing. He seems to really be enjoying himself. Yeah, he's loving this. Darth Vader will become more powerful than either of us, he says. He's worked for eons to ensure that events unfolded in this fashion. He's not going to concede defeat now. They duel green against red, interspersed here with the scenes of the blue-on-blue Anakin Obi-Wan duel, and they make their way into a pod in the Galactic Senate Hall. And the metaphor is not subtle, but it is ultimately clear and effective. They're dueling for the future of the Republic. Yoda turns the Senate pod into a Frisbee, which is, that's a nice move. And then he receives Palpatine's force lightning. We can see Yoda's power here. He's able to hold his own. Digs his claws into the side of a pod. He's doing whatever he has to to hold on. And then very suddenly and without a lot of clarity, things change in a hurry. He falls and then gives up. He flees. He sinks up with Bail Organa, crawling through the air vents, arranging his rescue. He basically pulls a brand here in the heart of the battle. I'm going to go now. I'm going to go now. It's Why? Like, I, yeah, it was not over. I don't Anywhere understand. Near over. Just he fell, and that's it. Sync up with Obi-Wan. Yeah. And take on the Chancellor, now the Emperor, together. Like, Yoda, what'd you do? I don't get this. Once again, it just must be said. At 600, maybe Yoda could have <laughs> taken it on. But I think at this point in time. Very puzzling. Very puzzling. But he does ultimately acknowledge it. Into exile, I must go, he says. Failed. I have. Sidious senses Anakin's peril and sets out to help him. On Mustafar, Anakin and Obi-Wan duel with incredible skill and fury. They are, as elite Jedi and longtime partners, incredibly well-matched. Yes. Well-versed in each of their own tendencies, their own instincts, their moves, their weaknesses. Nothing's off limits. They kick each other. They claw. They twirl. They also uh, accidentally activate the meltdown of the planet. Uh. <gasps> They travel as they brawl across catwalks, down towers, descending in concert with Anakin's soul down to the fiery surface of the planet. They're swinging on robes, surfing on metal plates. And the symbolism is fierce. The world is crumbling around them, just like Anakin's humanity is. This part's the best. I have failed you, Anakin, Obi-Wan says, and he's despondent. I have failed you. Anakin says, I should have known the Jedi were plotting to take over. Anakin, Chancellor Palpatine is evil. <laughs> It's nice when someone just states the facts, you know? Too rare in these films. From my point of view, ah, there it is again. Anakin says, the Jedi are evil. And then Obi-Wan says, well, then you are lost. And you realize that he maybe didn't understand that or fully accept it until that very moment. Didn't allow himself to believe that Anakin was gone. Maybe still thought that he could bring him back until he heard those words. Because hearing those words means that nothing that they've shared together, nothing that he taught or showed Anakin, matters anymore. This is the end for you, my master, Anakin says. And he jumps onto Obi-Wan's little lava surfboard and they battle in close proximity. And then Obi-Wan, who is seeing things clearly in a way that Anakin no longer can, flips onto the shore. 
the dust, the soot of the lava planet. Black sand, if you will. <laughs> and we know how Anakin feels about sand. You know, to add insult to literally <laughs> limb-severing injury. <laughs> Anakin faces him from his lava platform, and the music starts to surge and rise, just like the flows as Obi-Wan shouts, it's over, Anakin. I have the high ground. An iconic Star Wars moment. And apparently, enough of a difference maker, even among high-aptitude Force users, to take down the Chosen One to take down midichlorian Jesus himself. Never one who enjoys being doubted, Anakin takes the bait, receives this almost as a taunt. You underestimate my power. Which is... <laughs> Don't try it, Obi-Wan says. But Anakin does, launches himself toward Obi-Wan in his new twisted fate. And Obi-Wan slices up into the air with a saber, severing Anakin's legs and his remaining organic arm with one vicious cut. And Anakin grabs onto the land with his metal hand, and he is screaming in agony. And Obi-Wan's screaming too. You were the chosen one. It was said that you would destroy the Sith, not join them, bring balance to the Force, not leave it in darkness. And he picks up Anakin's lightsaber, the one that he'll give to Luke. In A New Hope, the one that Rey will find so many years later in The Force Awakens. And he begins to walk away, leaving Anakin there to rot. And Anakin shouts, <laughs> I hate you! I hate you! I think that's my favorite prequel meme, by the way. And his eyes are swelling with fire and pain and evil. He barely looks human anymore. Looks, yeah. You are my brother, Anakin. Obi-Wan cries back, I loved you. That part kills me. And at this moment, with Obi-Wan reflecting on who Anakin used to be and what has since been lost, the fire catches hold to the edge of Anakin's leg and spreads across him. The lava pulling Anakin into the depths of hell and darkness, turning his body like his soul into a ruin, a hellscape. He's now about to be Vader in every way. And it is an absolutely heartbreaking sequence, a reminder that even though Anakin's decision stems from a desire to save Padme— the Anakin-Obi-Wan bond is kind of the heart of these movies. Yes. Losing that is when we know that we've lost Anakin. And let's just say here again that this right here is the miracle of the prequels, and this movie in particular being a success. Because you know broadly heading in what you're getting, what you're moving toward, Darth Vader's rise. And yet, the suspense is riveting the whole way. It's actually completely captivating to see Vader's creation to see him turn into the villain who defined so many eras of cinema. As Obi-Wan flies away with R2 and 3PO and Padme, whom he gently caresses on the shoulder and face as she asks after all this if Anakin is okay, <laughs> we see Anakin's claw hand grab the gravel, drags himself up the bank. He survived, but his outward form will forevermore match his heart, broken, a shell, ruined. Fittingly, the shots of Anakin and Padme are interspersed from here. Uh -huh. Their fates intertwined. As a medical droid tells Bale, Obi-Wan, and Yoda that despite Padme being medically fine, she's dying, Palpatine takes Anakin into surgery. She has lost the will to live, the droid says, revealing that they need to operate now to save her children. She's carrying twins. The absurdity of Padme's death doesn't diminish the potency of Vader's birth. All he wanted to do was save Padme, but instead... He caused her death and must live on without her as a husk of a human being, scarred not just by her kiss, but by his choices. The medical droid works to stabilize him as he screams and Padme cries as she names her children, Luke and Leia. Leia, who despite being a second old, will later say that she remembers <laughs> her mother's beautiful face. Incredible. It's chilling to see Obi-Wan holding Luke, his one-day pupil, in his arms, but nothing can match the spine-tickling sensation of seeing yes. Vader's helmet lowered onto his ruined Ugh. face. 
Incredible sealing moment. Anakin's remaining life into place and sealing his legacy into place as well. His eyes wide as he looks up into the lenses that he'll gaze through for the rest of his life. Incredible. As he rises like a dark phoenix from the ashes. Remember how he'll ask Luke in his final moments to remove his helmet so that he can look upon him with his own eyes. And think of the horrors that he'll inflict between now and then. The crown clicks into place and Anakin takes his first breath as Vader. The signature <sighs> sound that we recognize instantaneously. Love and Padme, it. Padme got chill in that moment, It was man. incredible. Oh. In the meantime, Padme uses her dying breath to tell Obi-Wan that there's good in Anakin still, which will, years later, prove true, and which juxtaposed against Anakin's emerging as Vader at last reinforces one of the primary messages of the story. Made all the talk about dark and light, there's always the pull, the quest for balance, the belief that one can walk back and do what's right. Palpatine tells Anakin, Padme's dead. He says that Anakin killed her. We're going to get to this more in the eight. Stay tuned. Palpatine needs his apprentice to believe that this was all his fault. And in a way, regardless of where you land specifically on any given theory, it was Anakin's fault. But it's another reminder that Palpatine's manipulations will never cease. That Vader, whom he knows is more powerful than him, must always be managed into submission. She was alive, Anakin shouts. I felt it. And he breaks free from his restraints. The force of his pain destroys the lab. Liquids shooting out everywhere, metal crumpling. And he shouts, no! (laughs) And even though the moment when the mask clicks into place and he takes his first breath are spine-tingling and incredible, the no is widely mocked. Tough luck for my guy, Darth Vader. (laughs) Palpatine is smiling behind him, knowing that everything has clicked into place just like that helmet, knowing that he'll be able to channel that rage to do his evil bidding for years and years to come. Yoda, Bail, Obi-Wan, they're discussing how to hide the twins. Somewhere the Sith can't sense them, (laughs) Obi-Wan says. So how about Anakin's old homeworld with his mom's old family? That tracks. Sure. Bail takes Leia. He and his wife have wanted a child. Princess Leia, congrats! The boy again to Tatooine and his family, Yoda says. I will take the child and watch over him, Obi-Wan says. Ben Kenobi, welcome to the desert. Yoda says that until the time is right, a.k.a. 1977, they'll disappear. But before they go, Yoda has one more task for Obi-Wan. Training from Qui-Gon Jinn. An old friend has learned the path to immortality, he says. One who has returned from the netherworld of the Force, your old master. Force ghosts assemble! Bale gives 3PO and R2 to Captain Antilles and orders 3PO's mind to be wiped. Again, please listen to our droid podcast to understand why this is cruel and wrong. And everything is clicking into place for where we will find our friends when episode four begins. Padme's funeral is a somber affair, her necklace from Anakin in her hands as she's laid to rest, a piece of their love with her forever. Jar Jar kicking it in the distance. (laughs) And as Vader walks to Palpatine's side aboard his ship, they gaze out at their future and ours, the Death Star. But it's Star Wars. And so amid the darkness, there has to be hope. Obi-Wan brings Luke to Beru and Owen. And they look out as Luke will one day from that same spot up into the sky, into the infinite eventualities that the galaxy holds. The sun's setting on another day, maybe, but never on possibility. Jason. Yes. So this is how Liberty dies. With thunderous applause. But who's trying to kill it? Please gather the Padawan learners. Head to the Jedi Temple. Teach us everything we need to know 
about the Confederacy of Independent Systems. When the newly named Darth Vader, Sith apprentice to Darth Sidious, our good friend Anakin Skywalker, slaughtered the leaders of the Separatist Council on Mustafar, he brought an end to the Galactic Civil War and set the stage for empire. But who were they? Who were the Separatists? Or, as they preferred to be known, the Confederacy of Independent Systems. The Trade Federation, the Intergalactic Banking Clan, the Techno Union, the Commerce Guild, the Corporate Alliance, and the Retail Caucus. These organizations of like-minded, business-focused star systems were the prime movers behind the Separatist movement and, from their seats on the Separatist Council, shaped the strategy and tactics of the Confederacy. We are, of course, quite familiar with the Trade Federation and its leader, Viceroy Newt Gunray. The Federation was a cartel made up of systems involved, obviously, in intergalactic trade who joined together for the purposes of using their weight in the marketplace to keep prices high and keep competition at arm's length. The Federation was extremely powerful with significant sway in the Galactic Senate and its expansion into the Outer Rim territories and the particular issue of taxation of trade routes from there was the pretext the Federation used to blockade then invade Naboo. The intergalactic banking clan was an organization of the galaxy's most powerful banking interests. Despite being part of the Confederacy with a seat on the leadership council, the clan continued throughout the war to do business with the Republic and Republican allied corporations. As seen on the Clone Wars, during this time, Rush Clovis, a banking clan rep and separatist former senator and ex-boyfriend of Padme Amidala didn't mention him, did you? Too busy talking about Palo? Just talking about Palo. So what went down with Rush? Clearly something more, or you would have mentioned it. Anakin couldn't handle hearing about Rush. He couldn't handle couldn't it. Couldn't handle when, it. He couldn't handle it when Rush's identity is eventually revealed. <laughs> Ex-boyfriend of Padme's brings to light evidence showing the clan's corruption and double dealings. The Techno Union. Essentially, the Silicon Valley of the galaxy was an organization comprised of the galaxy's leading tech firms. Just like the banking clans, the Techno Union sought to profit from both sides of the war. The Separatist droid army made the insurgency possible and was manufactured and operated by the Techno Union in their millions. At the same time, various corporations within the Union continued their respective business relationships with the Republic. For instance, weapons manufacturer Blastech, maker of Han Solo's iconic DL-44, supplied Republican clone soldiers with millions of DC-17 rifles and variants of said rifle. Kuat Drive Yards, the galaxy's leading shipbuilding operation, contracted with the Republic to provide essentially all of its ships and vehicles from the massive Acclamator Galactic Assault Ship and Venator Star Destroyer to the smaller gunships used to airdrop clone soldiers, as seen on Geonosis and Kashyyyk, to the bipedal assault walkers and light speeders. Everything. The Commerce Guild is made up of galactic business interests across a wide spectrum of markets, including arms dealers, agriculture, retail products, and so on and so forth. The Guild's primary competitors were the Corporate Alliance and Retail Caucus, which were wealthy but appear to have been made up of so-called second-tier galactic corporations that banded together to increase their weight and strength. What united these groups in seceding from the Republic was their interest in having as little interference in the form of taxes and oversight of their industries as possible. Galactic business was just beginning to push into the outer rim and with so much money to be made from these virgin marketplaces, the last thing these groups wanted was Republican oversight. They wanted a free hand to exploit the nearly untapped markets found there. Businesses playing both sides of a civil war is 
something that can be found in our world as well. During the American Civil War, northern merchants evaded blockades of southern ports to illicitly purchase southern cotton, often with hard currency, a.k.a. gold, which was then used by the South to arm and outfit the Confederate Army. The book Order of the Day by the French writer Eric Vuillard also looks at various German and European businesses that supported the rise of Hitler and then walked away to continue doing business with the Allies and going forward into our current history. Holding these fractious, often competing interests together was Count Dooku. As a former Jedi from a respected galactic family, Dooku was an insider. So when in the years after he quit the council, he made a speech ripping the Republic as corrupt, ineffectual, and crucially biased towards the core systems and against the outer systems, his message carried great weight and found a receptive audience against the various galactic business cartels seeking more profits and less red tape. Of course, Dooku was also acting on the wishes of his master, Sith Lord Darth Sidious, who wanted nothing more than to raise tensions across the galaxy so that he could present himself as the one strong leader capable of uniting the galaxy. When Dooku, Grievous, seen by even the Separatists as an extremist, and the Separatist Council were exterminated, Palpy, now the Emperor, was free to consolidate their interests under his control and use their combined industrial might to build the Empire's weaponry and armaments, including the dreaded Death Star. Death Star, not so dreaded if you know where the vents are. Mal, you're breaking my heart. You're going down a path I cannot follow. But if it's paved with nuggets, I'll try. Down straight. So let's roll like BB-8 through eight of our favorite insights and observations from this film, Lightning Round Style. You go first. Number one, Mustafar. Bad planet. That's my take. Love it there. (laughs) Great setting. Now, you've seen its flesh-melting lava flows Mm. and... Cocooning ash beaches so like black sand it gets everywhere. But <laughs> wasn't always that way. No, long ago, Mustafar was a positively postcard-esque planet. Wow. The outer rim locale was once a forested land teeming with life and greenery. Fittingly, this really is parallelism and poetry at its peak here. The planet's shift from a vibrant land full of hope and possibility into a lethal wasteland good for a little more than mineral mining and a villain's lair, more on that lair in a moment, mirrors Anakin's metamorphosis from Jedi prodigy to masked Sith with both transformations of planet and person triggered by the desperations of love, folks. It isn't it always that. It always comes back to love. Enter Corvax, who along with her husband, lived peacefully alongside the Mustafarians until Corvax's husband died in battle after an attack on the planet. Now, this was tough for Corvax. And according to the VR experience Vader Immortal, which delves deeper into Mustafar's history and its stores of ancient power, Corvax, driven mad by grief and loss, gave in to the dark, fueled above all by a desire to once again be with the person she loved. Does that sound familiar to anyone? <laughs> Our girl, Corvax, couldn't get her hands on the Peveril Brothers' resurrection stone. But... Tough. (laughs) It is tough. Maybe for the best, though. She knew about the Bright Star, a holy Mustafarian artifact, one of the sacred crystals that powered the species' technology and thus their planet and their culture and their way of life. 
Corvax believed that the Bright Star could bring her husband back from the grave, and without Dumbledore there to tell her that no spell can reawaken the dead, she played God. But instead of reuniting with her partner, she unleashed from Bright Star energies that could not be contained, destroying the planet's ecosystem and turning it into the volcanic wilderness on which Anakin meets his doom. Quote, The Bright Star is in part responsible for turning Mustafar from the lush green world of the ancient past into the fiery hellscape we first saw in Revenge of the Sith and later in Rogue One. Lucasfilm story group creative Matt Martin told StarWars.com just this August, the year 2019 at D23. Number two, Fortress Vader, giving Anakin's parallel to Korvax and how deeply his own experience on Mustafar altered the course of his life. It tracks that he chose the planet as the location for his home base after beginning his life as Darth. There's another reason that it made an ideal home base for Sidious's apprentice, the Sanctum that he inhabited was constructed atop a Sith cave, a locus for the dark side nestled in a river of lava. Vader's first notable experience in the cave came when he traveled there to tap into the locus's energy in order to bleed the Kaiba crystals for his new lightsaber. Stay tuned more on kyber crystals, bleeding, and lightsaber construction in future pods. Yes. Vader's bleeding sparked visions of him denouncing the dark side and killing Sidious. And though he returned to the dark in that moment, he was awed by how the locust opened up the force for him. The decision to construct his fortress above the cave hinged in part on his desire to use these powers to attempt to resurrect Padme. The spirit of Maman, a previous Sith Lord, was trapped in a mask that Sidious gave to his new apprentice, and through it, Maman guided Vader in the construction of the castle, which included an obsidian stronghold and tuning towers to channel the dark side of the force. Maman, always intent on his own designs as he helped Vader build his abode, did briefly return to his corporeal form, leading to a duel with Vader that Vader eventually won, before Anakin's consciousness passed through the cave's portal in an effort to bring Padme back to life. But she did not return with him. And this, coupled with the vision of Luke, led Anakin to destroy the portal, which unearthed another source of ancient magic, Corvax's old pad locked by blood magic but containing the Bright Star. Vader unsurprisingly coveted this object but lacking Corvax's blood, couldn't use it. The VR experience Vader Immortal centers in part on an effort to bring the Bright Star to Vader. I love that Anakin was just kicking it in an entire castle made of dragon glass. <laughs> Dope. Number three, Vader's armor. Fortress Vader houses... Quite a bit. More than just ambitions to resurrect the dead. It also contains a Bacta tank, a restorative device in which an injured party can bathe in Bacta, a substance that, in essence, accelerates healing. Think of it as a dunk tank for wounds. We have seen Bacta tanks elsewhere in the Star Wars universe, including, of course, the legendary Luke floating in a diaper sequence in Empire Strikes Back following his Wampa attack on Hoth. The injuries that Anakin suffered during his battle with Obi-Wan required constant attention throughout the rest of his life. And he would take to his tank to restore his body and also his mind, often choosing to sequester himself inside of it to meditate. We glimpse Vader in the tank in Rogue One when director Orson Krennic flies to Mustafar to meet with Vader about the Death Star. And obviously, but importantly, he's in there bare-bodied. Yes, He's not wearing a suit because the tank is the rare environment in which he's able to exist without his suit. Vader's armor is not merely a symbol of the terror that it instills, though it is, of course, also that. It's also not just plating that protects him in a fight, though it is also that. It's an actual life support system to keep the human being inside of it functioning after his near-death experience following his duel with Obi-Wan. The armor 
tapped into a Sith tradition, centering on battleware and intimidation alike. Fashion and function, the Sith way. And Vader's suit, like so many other Sith befoulements, was powered by Sith alchemy, a practice used to enhance the strength of armor or a sword or other weapons, and one that the Jedi naturally renounced as a violation of the will of the Force. Number four! Aside from Darth Sidious, there was one person who bore the responsibility for the Separatist crisis and the Civil War which followed. It would have to be Count Dooku. Dookie! Two years before the Battle of Geonosis, the former Jedi returned to public life after eight years of self-imposed exile. On the Outer Rim planet of Raxus, Dooku made a speech which was broadcast throughout the galaxy. In it, Dooku blasted the Galactic Republic as feckless and corrupt, a body beyond reform that therefore must be rejected. As an ex-Jedi, an insider, and the leading member of a wealthy and powerful galactic family, Dooku commanded respect, and his message struck a chord. Number five, from Dookie to Grievy, <laughs> says quite a bit about General Grievous that even his fellow separatists considered him an extremist. They were like, wow, that guy, he's that intense. Guy needs he's a lot. Calm the fuck down. <laughs> he is a lot. The Kaleen native possessed an advanced strategical, tactical mind. Bright guy. Yeah. And eventually gave himself a body to match, opting into cybernetics that helped sustain him following accidents that had done him bodily harm. But they did more than sustain him. They made him a formidable battle foe who his allies and his rivals alike feared across the entire galaxy. No one wanted to get speared by those metal spikes. As the Separatist Supreme Military Commander, Grievous planned and executed numerous devastating campaigns. Two of the most important, at least in the context of the Galactic Civil War, were the Battle of Kamino and the raid on Coruscant, which opens this film. Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. The first wasn't a cut-and-dry, clear, wave-the-banner victory, but it did harm the Republic's ability yep. to keep generating their clone soldiers— and showed that no system, no matter how removed, was safe. Grievous always out there in Clone Wars with his ion cannon, it keeping a, you on your toes. Really a brilliant campaign, too. He had the uh, faint in space that was, like, fooling people. And then he had the submarines under Kamino all of a sudden rise up. And then he was just on the doorstep. If only he had spent more time making sure that his armor covered his vital organs. Well, then he would have been okay. It seems like an oversight in retrospect. <laughs> it does. It really does. Still, an assault beyond the outer rim, that's one thing. The second, Grievous took advantage of the fact that the Republic's military resources were spread thinner than the weakest margarine. Okay? <laughs> Stretched. Striking at the very heart of the galactic government. His lust, not only for a assault on the enemy, but for lightsaber collecting as trophies and his ability to wield them simultaneously. That's really his trademark. Number six. Shocking as it may be, nearly everything we know of the legendary Darth Plagueis the Wise. Yeah, but what about Take Man the Wise? <laughs> <laughs> is contained in Palpy's conversation with Anakin in Revenge of the Sith, which also marks the first mention of the deceased Sith Lord. Here's what we can say canonically about Darth Plagueis. He was Chief Palpatine's Sith Master. Uh -huh. He was very powerful. Indeed. And he was interested in exploring the possibility of using the dark side to gain immortality 
To that end, he was a keen researcher of midichlorians and palpy, as Sith Lords are wont to do. <laughs> Eventually, uh, usurped his master by killing him in his sleep. Listen. <laughs> It happens. It happens. Literally every time. <laughs> it happens. That's it. That's legitimately all we currently know, his race and his appearance. Other than that, he is male, is unknown. There's some Revenge of the Sith concept art out there on the internet, which was tweeted by Lucasfilm Story Group executive Pablo Hidalgo. His account is protected now. I don't know if it was at the time, but his Twitter account is protected, which shows Plagueis depicted as a Neomodian, mm. which is quite tantalizing. Mm. The alien race that dominates the Trade Federation, but that's, of course, in no way definitive. Right. Uh, perhaps we could learn more in episode nine. Will we get to hear him say blockade? I'll blockade. I'll blockade. <laughs> Number seven. The GH7 medical droid. Tending to dear, sweet Padme Amidala. After the tragic events on Mustafar. Says, quote, medically she is completely healthy. For reasons we can't explain, we are losing her. What kind of droid is, can we get another droid in here? <laughs> Now, it's assumed that Padme died of a broken heart. As we hinted at earlier, though, there is quite a bit of internet scholarship. Yes. <laughs> arguing that there's more going on here. A fan theory first posited, as far as we can tell, by Joseph Tavano, with an assist from his readers at the website RetroZap, suggests quite a different explanation. And it's one that makes a lot it of sense. It, make, it doesn't fit a lot of the things that... <laughs> happened. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence here. What if Palpatine using the force the skills that he learned long ago from Darth Plagueis stitching together his plan to ban Anakin fully to his will knowing that he'd never have Anakin's full devotion and concentration if Padme was just out there kicking it, raising their kids You would never be able to get him to focus No, it'd be like I'm teaching Luke to play catch Yeah. Teaching him to drink milk right from the teat What if Palpatine killed Padme from afar, draining her life force, not only to eliminate her, but to heal his apprentice, Darth Vader, linking Anakin and Padme once more. When Anakin rises, born as Vader, in his black armor for the first time and asks about Padme, as we talked about earlier, Palpatine says, it seems in your anger you killed her. And Vader's like, I couldn't have. (laughs) She was alive. I felt it. That's the whole thing about the force. You can feel things. Palpatine is quite deceptive about the cause, but he's right that Padme has died. And how would he know? great question. If he didn't have something to do with it. He's not there kicking it with Padme and GH7 and Obi-Wan. Yeah. You know? Bail Organa (laughs) on some secret base somewhere. He's halfway across the galaxy. So according to the theory, he would have known because he was the one causing it. There's a lot of interesting supporting evidence here, including, crucially, events from much further down the road in the canon and Return of the Jedi. Think about Vader's ultimate end. Chucking his master down the air shaft, taking a dose of Force lightning, and then he asks Luke, his son, to remove his mask. And really quickly after that, he dies. Yeah. Kind of a soft, quick, quiet end for a notoriously tough badass. Yeah. It really didn't get that zapped. Darth Vader, hard to kill. Yeah. According to this theory, 
These events could also be linked and supporting evidence for Palpatine killing Padme because what if Anakin's life force as a result of Palpatine draining Padme's to make Vader was also still linked to Palpatine? And in Palpatine getting sent down that air shaft, Vader's life force was severed. It's kind of poetic to think about even though Anakin and Padme weren't able to live their lives together, their life forces could have been linked in this way. I really like that one. It's great. Number eight. Kato Neomoidia. Yes. When Obi-Wan and Anakin are still pals, joking around about how many times Anakin has saved Obi-Wan's life, 10, Obi-Wan corrects the total count by saying, ninth time, that business on Kato Neomoidia doesn't count. What business doth he speak of? The Battle of Kato Neomoidia was a Clone Wars skirmish that centered on one of the Republic's many efforts to capture everybody's least favorite Viceroy Newt Gunray. Kato Neomoidia, the oldest of the purse worlds, housed Gunray's private citadel, and with a Republic onslaught making gains against General Grievous's forces, who retreated to an outer rim rendezvous, Gunray went back to fetch his riches before the Republic could take away his wealth. No Venmo or transferring back then. As Gunray counted his coppers, the pursuit came and the battle on two fronts. Republic Star Destroyers versus Trade Federation Armada in the sky and Anakin, Obi-Wan, and the clones on the ground. It wasn't easy to get into Gunray's Citadel, given the energy shields and cannons defending it, but eventually our dudes, plus Commander Cody, love Love Cody, Cody. and his troops made it in through the subterranean fungus farms Mm. and pursued their prize. Problem, though. Gross. Obi-Wan lost his... Always losing shit. Always. Obi-Wan lost his rebreather, and in the course of the battle, he inhaled hallucinogenic spores and became disoriented. Typically, it just sounds like a great weekend in the desert out in California, honestly. Anakin naturally had a bit of a laugh when he saw his master in such a state, but he also popped a rebreather into Obi-Wan's mouth helping his master regain the ability to breathe properly filtered air and regain his faculties. They didn't get Gunray, who, as we know, escaped long enough to ultimately meet his end at Anakin's hands on Mustafar, but they did capture Cato Neomoidia, uncover a message from Darth Sidious, and secure separatist communication codes. Not bad for a day's work. Jason? Yeah! The dark side of the Force is a pathway to many abilities some consider to be... Unnatural. And also a pathway to trophies. Honestly, like, real talk, check the scoreboard. Check it. Just saying. Just saying. Can I learn how to win like this? (laughs) Not from a Jedi. (laughs) Incredible. Every episode of our movie discussions, we're going to honor the character or thing who rallied the troops, advanced the cause. And today, clearly the winner of our Medal of Bravery is... The Empire. Sad to say it. Dun, 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 dun. Our good friend, Sheev, man, he is on a streak right now. Sure is. Moving from senator to supreme chancellor and now to emperor in short order. This is Jordan's first three-peat, as I would say, and installing the Galactic Empire in place of the Republic. What an amazing turn of events for Sheev Palpatine just a small town boy from Naboo. Made it to the big time. <laughs> Keeps a vacation home and everything, you know? Love it when a plan comes together. It's aspirational, really. Palp's duel with Mace Windu forever disfigures him, which is, you know, that's a tough beat. It is. But yeah. but he makes it work for him. His scarred visage allows him to further manipulate the Senate. And in a meta sense, that face and the hood, that mask, yeah. have become one of the most iconic symbols in all of pop culture, still a meme to this day. After the Sith Order remained in hiding for thousands of years, Darth Sidious finally revealed himself forever, altering the course of history, and 
He felt emboldened to do so in part because he had turned Anakin Skywalker, so much potential, so much power, to the dark side, securing an apprentice that he knew would enable him to obliterate the Jedi Order and whom he knew would be more powerful than any foe, including, as he learned to his peril in Return of the Jedi, himself. Through the Senate, he bent the Republic to his will, cashing in on the long con that he'd been playing since maneuvering his way from senator to chancellor and then procuring emergency dictatorial powers. Thanks, Jar Jar. <laughs> Great work. The galaxy's entire governing structure shifts here. The world of Star Wars that we were all introduced to in A New Hope stems from what happens here. The death of the Republic, the birth of the Empire that would seek through tyranny and fear in the dark side to control the masses. The fascism and evil that Leia and Luke and so many others would go on to face first rises here. Palpatine and Anakin not only seize control of the government, but rid themselves of their fiercest potential enemies by killing the Jedi. Palpatine executes Order 66, cashing in another long con. He's been working for these results for a oh, long, long time, time by finally turning the Republic's clone army against the Jedi and into the personal soldiers that he had long intended them to be. And he doesn't just win Anakin. He creates Darth Vader, the most feared Incredible. villain in the Star Wars galaxy and ours as well. As is the case for so many evil figures, Palpatine inadvertently created the thing that would undo him in the end. Yes. But it's a long time away. For now, he has his apprentice and his galactic fiefdom and the Death Star in motion and the rebellion spark not yet meaningfully lit. Good stuff from Sheev. I love it. Well, friends, careful you must be when sensing the future of this podcast. Just like we keep telling Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are to hop back into the speeder and continue exploring the galaxy. And that you'll join us again next time. Until then, remember, it's over. We have the high ground. Bad man don't care. I know we're out here. Just now come here. Come right here behind this small wall in the midst of this entire crowd. <laughs> You're trembling. What's wrong? Anakin, something, something wonderful has happened. I'm pregnant. Oh, uh, <laughs> that's, uh, you sure? I mean, that's, um, that's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd love it. You, you're on the pill? No, you're not. You weren't? <laughs> I could have sworn we did, we talked about this. Didn't you say, you said something that you can only really get pregnant, like, three days out of your cycle? Didn't you say that? <laughs>